right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Solly here. We have a special episode for you today. Uh, we pitched this idea to BMW maybe, I think it was two years ago now, with the delay of the Ryder Cup that, you know, we've gone all around the world and uh, met a lot of people that have had something to do with the Ryder Cup uh, for many, many, many years, have interviewed a lot of them and have published a lot of those interviews. And we said, what if we just took everything we've ever, you know, talked to about from a player? A, a, a captain or anyone involved with the Ryder Cup and put it into one mega episode to get people hyped for the Ryder Cup. Kind of thought it'd be like about an hour and a half, two hours. We had over five hours of content to sift through. I actually I ended up deleting, you know, maybe two hours of it, you know, just, just kind of trimming stuff down. You know, we do a highlight medley show at the end of every year. This is going to be a little different than that. This is much more long-winded. This is much more Letting these conversations breathe a little bit, sometimes 15, 20, 25 minutes at a time, but uh, basically just almost any Ryder Cup story you could imagine that's been told on our podcast over the years. Not going to lie, pretty proud of this. This has been uh, a lot of fun to put together and a, uh, a lot of fun to talk to all these people over the years about my obviously my favorite golf event. And want to give a big shout out to BMW, a global partner of the Ryder Cup, as well as a partner of ours for supporting all of our uh, Ryder Cup content, both all throughout the year, as well as the videos we've been posting recently on YouTube. Uh, this podcast, the 1991 Deep Dive podcast, and then the Captaincy Deep Dive we did with Paul McGinley, who you'll be hearing from extremely shortly because he is heavily featured in this. And I, I could have honestly published all hour plus of his interview, but did trim uh, trim out to you know some of, some of the parts of it and kept the best parts. But again, shout out to BMW. Hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Uh, hopefully you get a long drive ahead of you. We'll help you pass the time. But here we go. First up is from episode 359 with Paul McGinley. I was super tempted to leave all one hour and two minutes worth of Ryder Cup stories that he told in there, but I decided not to. My favorite Ryder Cup podcast we've ever done. I, For the first time, I've really got to understand what good captaincy looks like. Uh, he's going to play three stories back-to-back. I'm not going to come in in between them. He's going to talk about how he was managed in 2002, how that related to how he managed Graham McDowell in 2014, as well as a great story from 2004 from Bernard Lunger. Here is Paul McGinley, episode 359. Yeah, well, I, I knew I wasn't playing in the morning. Sam captained me really well, and you know that's an important thing to kind of touch on. So what he did, myself, there was four of us, myself, Lee Westwood, uh, Philip Price, I think it was Per Folky. The four of us had really lost form that year. You know, some players are playing better. Some play- no, no, it was Jesper Parnik. Those four players, and Jesper was still in America. So the three of us uh, who were based in in, in the UK um, were brought up to um, the Belfry the week before by Sam. I live beside Sam here down in Sunningdale. And uh, we went up for a practice round 12 or 10 days maybe before the Ryder Cup. Uh, the World Championship was on over in Ireland, ironically. Uh, none of us had qualified to play in that. And uh, he said, come on, let's get in. Let's all get together and get up and, and have a run around uh, in the Belfry, get a have a look at the course. That stage, all the stands were up and we kind of had a nice uh, fall ball on the way around. We had a bit of food afterwards, a nice bit of banter. Um, and then on the way back, we got in. Sam had a, a driven BMW, um, a, a driver. And we got in the back of the car and he jumps in the back beside me, uh, this big 7 Series BMW. And he's got a bottle of pink champagne and two glasses. He opens up the bottle of champagne. The, the, the drive back is about two hours from, from Birmingham in the Belfry. He said, right, we're going to talk about your role this week. And he went through everything. 
and he basically showed so much confidence in me. He told me the role everybody was going to play, how many matches everybody was going to play, how many matches I was going to play, who my who my partners would be. Just gave me such exude of, of of confidence that you know you're part of the team. You're not kind of a guy I'm trying to manage here. Uh, he made me mm-hmm. real real part of it. And, and getting out of the car on the far side, you know, I really felt like I was going to be in a very important. He made me feel a very important part of his team a very important member of his team, even though, you know, on the car journey and the way up, I felt that I was the outsider and I was a problem that he had to manage. Wow. That sounds like leadership to me. I feel, I feel like on, on our side of the pond, it's a lot of the, the players dictating so much stuff and instead, and, and almost not having feeling like they're kind of reporting to someone. I, I get the sense from you that you just had such respect for the captaincy and, and the, maybe the Europeans have more, more respect for, you know the 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 process and the figurehead at the top of it uh, than uh, than maybe the Americans do. I don't know if you could speak to that directly, but that just sounds like a very different system than maybe what we have. Well, I mean, I, I think it's different in America now, Chris. But certainly, one, one, there's a huge important dynamic here um, that America were missing that don't do now, and that was the fact that all of the Ryder Cup captains in Europe were chosen by their peers, chosen by the players. Right, the players' yeah. committee, representative of the players were the guys who chose who the captain would be. Not, you know, a PGA board or, you know, somebody from the outside or, you know, some figureheads picking it. No, it was the actual players who put the captain in place. And that was a very important dynamic. I know post-task force now, American have changed that and the players through the task force are, are, are very much in control of that now. But, you know, I felt that was probably where a lot of that respect came from. So um, my philosophy as a captain was very much um, along the lines of Sam Torrance. It was about communication. It was about relationships. It was about managing all the relationships. I mean, I didn't have 12 guys that I knew really, really well. I knew a lot of them well, um, and some were easy to manage, um, and some were more difficult. You know, Victor Dubasson had made the team who, you know, all the French guys in tour were telling me he was kicked off the French team when he was an amateur, kicked out, kicked out of the federation. He wore the wrong clothes. He wouldn't be told what to do. He won't turn up for team meetings and all of those. And, you know, that was highlighted as a red flag to me. So I made it really made it my business. I put a lot of effort into managing him. And, and I did that by getting to know him as a person. I remember going out to Malaysia for a week where he was playing and spending a week with him, having dinner with him at night and trying to break down his barrier that he had as a human and, and tried to get me into it. He's very untrustworthy of people and, and, you know, try to get him in there. I took him down to Monaco. We had a bottle of wine on a, on a, on a friend of mine. He was a formula one team. I knew he loved formula one, got him into that environment, got him in a nice kind of, and, you know, kind of managed him and slowly brought him into the team and then got, got Graham McDowell to play a part as a senior guy. He needed a senior guy. Then I had to talk, and to Joel Graham into playing that role. Uh, Graham wanted to play a bigger role. He wanted to be one of the stars of the team and play in all five games. And I said, no, Graham, I mean, this is the plan. At that stage, I was formulating a plan of who was going to play what, just like Sam did to me in the back of that BMW on the way down with a bottle of champagne. He had a plan and I was going to have a plan. And, and you know, I was starting to formulate the plan pre that Ryder Cup um, of who was going to play with who. And, and, and then it was a question of when the Ryder Cup came, I was going to roll out that plan. It wasn't making it up as I went. It wasn't making it up two days before. This was going to be made up well in advance based on statistics, based on, on, on the golf course. And, um, and and that was going to be the plan. And, and then the, man, that, that, the, the, um, the communication of that plan to each individual player and not telling them, like Sam did, what everybody else is doing. So, for example, you know, Rory wasn't aware of, of who else was doing what in the team except who he would be playing with and whose potential partners were and how many matches he would play. That's all he needed to know. Whereas, and Victor the same, you know, if you're going to be playing two matches, you're going to be playing with Graham in the foursomes the first two days and then you're going to play the singles, you're going to be playing three matches. You know, and then with Graham, 
Um, I had a little bit of the yin and the yang. So trying to get Graham convinced to play this role of only playing three out of five matches was a naughty thing. You know, Graham, like all players, has got an ego and he wanted to play five. And he's, you know, coming off, you know, not long after being the US Open champion and a big star and, and, and you know, and, and had, had been an absolute hero in 2010 and really wanted to play that that big role, that lead role. And um, I had a little bit of a, a smaller role for him to play, but a very important one in terms of looking after one of the rookies playing those two matches in a difficult format that is foursomes. Um, and I had to try and convince him that this was the right thing to do. So I did it uh, in by talking to him on a humane level and also on a common sense level. Uh, and I and I set them down based on what I knew with statistics and what I trawled out. Um, and I said, look, the real key to unlocking this golf course based on, on the stats that I've gathered over the last 10 years of the Johnny Walker around Glen Eagles golf course, Graham, is the fact that the real key is unlocking the par fives. There's four par fives in this golf course as well as a drivable par four. Now, they're all big par fives. And uh, what I really want to do is I want to have the, the bigger hitter driving on these holes. Four out of those five holes are even numbers, Graham. I really need, you're not one of the bigger hitters. I need to put you with a big hitter and I need to, you to, to look after a guy who's, who's who needs somebody senior and mature on the team and there's nobody better than you to play that role. And then I took out the yardage map and I showed him, you know, your average drive down to second, Graham, is, is, you know, he can't get home in two. Whereas if he drives, you're able to get home in two. And then slowly went around the golf course that way. When it comes to 14, he can drive the, gray, the, the green, Graham, because it's an even number. It'll be his driving hole. Whereas, you know, if you're driving on that hole, you're going to have to lay it up. And uh, so my, my forces partnerships were yin and yang. I had a big hitter and a shorter hitter uh, in each partnership in order to attack the par fives with the bigger hitter driving on the um, on the even numbers. So then if he, if he played all that role for him, I then gave him the cherry of, I say, look, Graham, if you do this for me, I'll put you out number one in the singles uh, in, in two weeks' time. I'll, I'll put you out leading out the team in singles. You know, now I'm playing to his ego. I'm playing to you know, a role that he really wanted to play. And he's like, really? What will Rory say about that? And, and I said, I've cleared it with Rory. Rory's good with, with all of this. We're going to put Rory out number three because putting out number one is a lot of expectation on his shoulders. I know the last two European captains have put him out at number one, but that hasn't worked out too well. He's lost both of his games. You know, I personally wouldn't be putting out the best player at number one because they've got nowhere to go at number one. They're expected to win. There's a huge amount of expectation on their shoulders. And that was my, 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 I said to Graham, I said, my gut instinct is, the best number ones are the street fighters, the guys with the biggest heart. That's the guy you put out number one, Graham, and you're the guy with the biggest heart in this team. So, you know, it, it was all about managing that kind of, just an example of the communication and, uh, that I had with Graham. And so he went away, then he played his two games with, uh, with with Victor. They won both of their games and Graham was terrific. And then he went out number one in the singles and, and one in the singles. And, and you know, the other, the other point I made to him about playing the singles, Graham, is look, Graham, if you play this role in the first two days of only playing one match, you're going to have an advantage in the singles. And the advantage will be America are going to do one of two things. They've historically always done one of two things. They'll either put out their best player, number one, or they'll put out the player who's playing the best that week. Either way, Graham, they'll have played 72 holes in the first two days. You only have played 36. You're going to be fresher going out against whoever you're playing against. doesn't matter who it is. And that's ultimately what happened. You know, he, he went out against Jordan Spieth, who was their best player. And uh, and Jordan tired. I mean, Jordan got three up at one stage early on Graham, but but faded then as, as Graham went on to win two and one. So all those conversations were had two weeks in advance of the Ryder Cup. Graham knew well in advance of the Ryder Cup exactly what role he would play, and that's ultimately what happened. Uh, it was a different vibe. I mean, the captain brings the vibe, uh, Chris, and and you know it was a different vibe. Bern was a lot more serious guy than um, 
you certainly wouldn't be playing music in the in the team room the way we were with Sam. But that was okay. We all had a huge amount of respect for Bernard Langer, a real statesman of the tour, a statesman of the team, very Germanic in, in how he was going to captain. We knew that. You know, a meeting at seven o'clock meant a meeting at seven, not one minute past seven. We all knew to be early. You know, he would wait, even though we all be sitting down at five minutes to seven, he wouldn't come into the meeting room until it was it was uh, it was seven o'clock. And I remember with a big long table, like a big boardroom table in this Marriott Hotel, I think we stayed in um, outside of Detroit. You know, it was just a generic boardroom table. I remember looking around before one of the meetings and going, wow, this should be alive. We should have images on the wall here. This should be alive. We need to make, you know, if I'm ever captain one day or if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a team room that's alive. That's, you know, this is, can't be just another Marriott boardroom uh, that anybody uses. This should have images on the wall. It should have curtains. It should have carpet. And I started dream up all these things, which I ultimately put in place in 14. So Bernard was very, um, he was a lot more hands-on than me as I evolved into be because I was formulating my ideas all the time. He was a lot more hands-on. He was got involved in what the players were doing on the course, something I didn't do. In fact, I did the opposite. I stayed away from the players when they were on the golf course. And, you know, I didn't see my role as telling Rory McIlroy it's a five iron rather than a six or be careful with the wind here or you need to do this or uh, Ian Poulter, or whatever the case may be. Watch the, watch the reading of this put The guys in front missed it by, a, by you know, over-reading it or whatever. So what Bernard did, what was very interesting, was he stayed on the par threes um, and generally pinpointed a few of the par threes. And our, there was one, another really good story here. Myself and Podrick played Tiger and Davis on the afternoon of the second day. We were two down after two and we got ourselves back to maybe all square. I think 13 in, in the Oakland Hills is the par three. I'm pretty sure it's 13. It's about 140 yards or so. And it's a two-tiered green, uh, really narrow, really narrow tier on top, and a bunker behind the green. And it's all about distance control. We were all square and maybe one up at that stage playing it. No, no, we, we definitely had the honour. So it was Pardick's tee shot. This was the foursomes, and uh, crowd behind the tee box uh, in a stand. So Bernard comes over in his very Germanic way and, and kind of gets the two of us together, and he says, "Pardick, what club are you going to hit?" And Pardick says to the caddy, "What is it?" The caddy says, "Whatever, one forty-three." He said. Uh, he said, uh, what club are you going to hit? And Pardick says, oh, 143, nice nine iron. He said, no. He said, I want you to hit wedge. And then Pardick says to the caddy, well, what's the carry What's the carry to the top tier? The caddy says, 135. He says, Bernard, I can't hit a wedge 135. I won't get it on the top tier. And Bernard said, I don't care. I want you to hit it into the slope and come back down to the bottom of the hill. He said, but 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 that's going to leave a really tough spot. He said, yeah, I want you to hit it into the hill and come back down the bottom of the hill. Make it look like you've hit a good shot. So Pardick being the dutiful player that he was at that stage, uh, I don't know if he'd have done it late in his career, he stood over, he hit his 135 shot, pitched into the slope, ball came running down the hill and all the crowd went ooh behind and all of that. And kind of Pardick didn't show a lot of disgust, but he kind of looked like he was disappointed. In fact, he probably was. He was mad at Bernard, even though he'd never admitted. And he picked up the tee and he kind of walked over to me and he looked at me with this really look like, I knew I was never going to do that. What, what's this guy doing? Next of all, Tiger stands up, it's his, his shot, and he plays the most beautiful nine iron, three quarter, spin off, you know, loads of spin up in the air, this thing coming down really, really soft. It pitches two feet from the pin, hard bounce into the back bunker. And he, he looks at Davis, he goes, Christ, he said, I hit that beautifully. So Davis gets into the bunker and he's got no shot. And he plays an unbelievable shot out, just misses the flag, catches the tear, back down to where I was putting. I rolled a putt up to two feet, Pardick knocks it in, we win the hole. 
The point being, Bernard had stood on that tee. He saw the top tier was rock hard. He saw that nobody could keep it on the top tier. And he gave part of the information he hit it on the bottom tier. And, and um, you know, there's the value of a captain getting involved in what the players do. Next up, Hunter Mahan, episode 410. Again, a great look into the difference in two captains that he played for, uh, one that promoted great play, one that maybe did not. Episode 410, uh, Hunter Mahan. Well, I want to go to that 2008 Ryder Cup team. You know, how, how you got onto that team, you, you know, you don't see many captain's picks going all five matches. And how Azinger went about, you know, going about, you know, getting input from players into how they were put into pods. And we can talk some about how the, the teams in your later part of your career were formed as well. Because that one seems to stick out to me and how that was done. Uh, so how would you compare, compare it to, you know, later years, how teams were put together and how that team worked versus the, your first year in 2008? I remember getting talking to Paul a couple times beforehand. I was just, you know, in and out, in and out of the team for a while. And he gave me great advice. I remember because I talked to him and I said, you know, Paul, I just want you, I really, I want to be on this team more than anything. I mean, I grew up watching the Ryder Cup. I love the passion. And I, I mean, I understand I got great experience from the President's Cup. I can't tell you how much it would mean to me to be a part of the team. And, and he told me, you know, I want you, He's like, I, I, I believe in you, and I, and I, and I want you to be a part of this, and I want you to, I don't want you to want it the right amount. I don't want you to want it too much, and put pressure on yourself, and I don't want you to just kind of hope you make it, you know. But you, know, I want you to live in that great space of, 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 of wanting it just the right amount, and 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 be good to yourself, and just keep keep doing what you're doing because you're on the right path. Um, and so that gave me a lot of confidence that he just told me that whether I made the team or not, you know, what he did was uh, he did so many amazing things very subtly, you know, he gave a lot of ownership to the team, you know, because the pod said, Hey, we want Hunter man on this team. And so that little group he gave ownership to, he said, Hey, who do you guys want? And, and so that's how I made the team with, you know, our pod was AK, Phil and, and Justin and, you know, a lot was made of these personality tests, but he was just trying to get the right people together to play their very best. And the hardest part of it, and 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 what always seemed to, I, a few guys made some captains made some comments like, "Hey, he's like, I don't want, I want twelve guys to bond, not just a couple in a pod." You know, they were very like adamant about we have to be a unit of twelve guys. It's like we're not a unit of 12 guys. We're 12 individuals trying to figure it out this week. Let's get to know who we're going to play with on an intimate level and play for the next three, four days to understand maybe the nuances of each other and understand how each other is going to play each hole. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no point in trying to figure out me, a player trying to figure out 11 other guys and how they're going to play. You know, we, we, we know, we know each other, but, we're not going to play with everybody and we shouldn't have the option to play with everybody. There's going to be a small group of us that need to know each other and play well. And that, you know, there was a, we had a rough run and there was a going into that, that Ryder cup. Um, 20, you know, there's so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was so much success of the president's cup, but for some reason the Ryder cup had this, you know, a lot of the, the, the guys who've been on some tough teams said, you know, it's the most pressure we're going to have. You're going to be under so much stress. It's like they were kind of creating a snowball, whether they knew it or not. And we just, it just, you know, we got there and it was just such a fun group. And 
Paul was so energetic and he just was so excited for us. He was like, he was just so like, he's like, guys, you are, he's like, I am just so proud of you. And I'm just so excited in it. And I cannot wait to get out there and play. The crowd is excited. The crowd is pumped. This is just, you know, it was, it was just an amazing thing to be a part of. And it just kind of quite hasn't, you know, I think, when the U.S. has won, they've just been so talented. I mean, there's been, you know, I got to do a little bit of the BBC in Hazeltine, and that team was just unbelievably talented. That was just top to bottom. The team was was a joke how good they were, and they just kind of overwhelmed Europe. But um, that eight team was just so fun, and they were, I mean, it was just so fun to be a part of, and it felt like we were, even though we were in pods, man, we, we were a unit, and we were so excited to go out there and play and play in front of those fans. And we just had so much fun. Yeah. And the more you describe that, the more I'm just like, man, that, it, the atmosphere, it almost like is a tight, you know, wound tight promoted atmosphere. Other than that year, you look back, you know, like every, almost every, everyone talks about the pressure. You're never going to feel so much pressure like you are in your whole life, blah, 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 all this. And what you saying about Paul, like you guys did look like you were having fun out there. And like with, what is more likely to promote good golf? You know, going out and having fun and being yourself, or this expectation that you are going to be under the most pressure that you've ever been under in your whole life? Like, like just I've never seen it more clearly than after you describing that of like why these really talented teams have struggled to come up with Ryder Cup wins. And what he did too, I thought was brilliant. It was that he sort of laid everything out before we got there. Um, he's like, "This is your pod. This is your group." This is how we're going to play the course. And we're going to, he's like, I want birdies. I want loud. I want energy. I want noise. Uh, So we're going to make it a little bit easier. We're going to take the rough down. He laid kind of everything out there for everybody. So when we got there on Monday, everything was set in stone. We just had to go play. We just had to go figure out uh, how we're going to play the golf course. We just had to go. We didn't have to worry about anything. Everything was already done. Like he had the matches all set up throughout the week. I was, and then he would make little changes, right? Like AK and I were supposed to play Saturday afternoon, but AK had a tough Saturday uh, morning. And so Phil's like, I- I'm good to go. I'm going to go play. And Justin's like, Hunter's playing great. Just keep him out there. And so he, everything was already set up. And sometimes you get to these events and it felt like um, we're figuring out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday about who we're going to play with. And I remember um, in Wales, uh, it wasn't Wales, but it was, um, it was with, it was with, uh, Watson, um, Glenn Eagles, Glenn Eagles. Um, he said, you're going to go out with Jim, Jim Furyk. And I was like, all right. I hadn't played with Jim all week. I had, and we were playing alternate shot. I hadn't hit his ball all week. It was like, okay, we ran out to the range and we're like, Jim, what do you use? And it was just kind of like, you know, that's, you know, it, that was, a little frustrating and, and it was tough about that week, but um, I love Jim Furyk and I couldn't wait to play with him, but I was just like, I wish I kind of played a little bit more with him that week to know that that was going to happen. You and that's to be prepared for that. Right. And that's what Paul did. He just set everything up to where he's like, you guys just go out and play and just enjoy the crap and about what you're going to experience. Cause I want this to be so much fun for you because the fact is you made it, you made on, you made it on the team. The hard work's done. You, you work two years to get to this point. Go have fun and enjoy it. And that's what we felt uh, that all week, every day. Tell me you have a framed picture or something from your putt on 17 and oh, the singles. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. 
I've got a different, uh, there's a few pictures. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got one uh, frame like that for sure. Golf celebrations never look cool, and I can confidently say that's one of the best golf celebrations I think I've ever seen. <laughs> well, it's hilarious that how much emotion comes out in those events now. I felt like that kind of started it. You know, there was other, other times when you'd win, but it was – Man, it was just so hyped up, and I—I I, I was, you know, it was cool because I was at—I um, played the Junior Ryder Cup and during Brookline, and we got to go on Thursday, Friday. Um, they invited us out there, so it was cool to be a part of it as a as a young kid and see that. And uh, I just, you know, Justin making that putt up the hill. We weren't there that day, but I remember watching on TV and that celebration. People are running on the green, and and he's <laughs> he's just. It's just bonkers about what's going on, and and uh, that's what the Ryder Cup is about. And those team events, it's just you get to just lay it all out there and just have fun. One thing we love to joke about is you were you were sitting next to Phil at that press conference in the 2014 Ryder Cup when, <laughs> when and your face is just is priceless as Phil. You know, Tom Watson is up there on the on the you know the ledge as well, sitting with you guys, and he he basically just challenges the whole U.S. process, right? And I'm wondering, you know, what you one what you're thinking at that time as it's happening. It seemed to be the sentiment of the team, you know, that he was representing. And wondering if, you know, Phil, you thought Phil needed to do that publicly or, you know, it seemed like change came after that moment. And, and I, I'm back and forth on whether that needed to be publicly done. But what, what are you sitting there thinking as, as Phil is doing that the, uh, in the press conference? Yeah, I mean, I think Phil, I think those events are so personal to us because we're, we're in it when we're playing and we're trying. But sometimes we just don't have control over certain things. And that's a little frustrating and it's frustrating for a guy like Phil, who's been a part of every team since the early nineties. Right. And he knows kind of what works and, and there's no one in the world I respect more than, than Phil Mookson. I, I, I absolutely adore the guy. Um, he's someone I, I look up to and I, and I, I call a, a great, great friend. We've talked about many different things and he's someone I take great, um, advice from in, in all sorts of areas. And I deeply respect his opinion on, on all kinds of things. And I think he just came to a head and he was like, you know, uh, some changes need to be made. Um, every year we hear about Europe has like this process, right. And, and they've had this process for a long time about the captains being assistant captains. Like they, they had a beautiful process about what they were doing and how they were doing things. And it was showing up cause they were kicking our butt. And um, I just think he he just sort of had enough. And I, I promise you, he talked to the PJ of America numerous times. Phil would not have done that unless he thought it was a last resort. And he he I get, he talked to them over and over again about creating some sort of process and being a part of it and saying, hey, we kind of understand who we are and what we need. And, and let's create a pathway for each captain to be a part of it beforehand, because it is a daunting thing to be a captain of of a Ryder cup like that or any team event. I mean, there is so much that goes into it, um, to just be, to do it one time and to get it right would be so hard. And, you know, I mean, I think Phil just said, you know what, I, I got to do it. I got it. And I know he, he told us, he told me, he's like, I, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And it's could be uncomfortable, but sometimes uncomfortable is exactly what you need in, in a lot of different situations. Um, and that's just what we needed to, to make a little bit of a change. Uh, 
in no way did it, I don't think he meant any disrespect to to Tom Watson because I think all of us deeply respect Tom uh, for the kind of the person he is and and um, the player he is and the guy. I mean, it, it wasn't. It was more about the process than it was really about the individual. Yeah, it's almost like it was directed at the PGA of America in a way of like Tom came in and did what Tom was gonna do, right? I mean, that's what yeah. he was brought in to do. So absolutely, it, it's not his fault in any way. But like, hey, looking at this from you know, just in talking with even some people that are involved in the process of, you know, I'm like, hey, how, why did this decision get made? And the answer is, well, he just you know he had the most experience. And I just want to challenge that. I want to be like, man, like I don't is that is that what is constitutes a great lead, a great leader or the right process or the person that's going to be the best in touch with these players and all these things and you you know, for a long time it was you had to be a major champion to be a captain of one of these teams and I just I'm like, do you even have to be a golf guy to be a captain of one of these teams? And I just I I find the U.S.'s process improved, but still I don't know if it's all the way there in terms of setting the team up to play their best possible golf because it still seems like a very ceremonial, uh, you know, honor that's given to people to be captains of these teams. But if we're really trying to win them, are we following the process that leads to the most success? Yeah, and I think that's what Phil's message was at that time was Europe has a plan and they have a plan of attack. And that's what we were, it felt like and what it really seemed like we were sort of lacking was they have a process in what they're doing. And you can't tell me that they're just better than us and they're beating us, but they feel so comfortable with what they're doing and they, it's just, you can see in their play, they just have no doubt about what they're doing when they get there. Like it's already done. And I think the hardest part for us as players was we didn't know what still was going on and who we were playing with. Um, going into, like I said, I didn't know I was playing with Jim until Saturday afternoon. And I was like, you know, that's a frustrating thing for a player and changes need to be made. And at some point, someone's going to have to speak up, and it's okay to be uncomfortable. Because that's how, that's how things uh, get done. And Phil's, and Phil's, the great thing with Phil is he has so much respect with all the players and the PGA of America and the PGA Tour that when he says something, it has weight. And we all supported him in that way. And, and he has the, the, the guts you know, and we've seen it through time. He has the guts to go out there and put himself out there. And I think we all really um, respected him for that uh, because he wants to win and he wants to compete. We're going to hear a lot from Bones on this one. This is from episode 167, the 2018 Ryder Cup preview. A great story he tells about Brookline, Phil Mickelson, and Yarmo Sandlin. Uh, I, I figured we'd get to Yarmo at some point here. So, <laughs> I made it like 20 minutes. <laughs> so in 96, they used to have this tournament, the old Dunhill Cup, back in the uh, 80s and 90s. It was this phenomenal event that they have in the fall at St. Andrews where you'd get three players from, from, from certain countries and you go over there and you'd play against other other teams, if you will, and you know whoever won two matches or what have you would advance. And it was this great kind of knockout competition. And Early in Phil's career in 96, he made the team. We went over to St. Andrews with Stricker and Marco Mira and played these matches. And it was just, you know, it's it's one thing to be at St. Andrews. It's another thing to be there that time of year. It was kind of cold and fun. And 
and the, the U.S. team was playing well. This was at a time when Stricker was a bit of an unknown quantity, and you know, guys from other countries didn't know who he was, and he was just crushing people over there. And it was so much fun. It was this great week, and and uh, this guy Yarmo Sandlin was playing for Sweden, and they were playing uh, they were playing South Africa, and I believe the quarterfinals and uh, Phil and I were watching it from his hotel room. We'd already won our match earlier that day and the U S had advanced and we were going to play the winner of uh, whoever won these matches. And Yarmo Sandlin was playing in a, in a playoff. He, I think he had tied Nick price and uh, they were playing, playing it off on the first hole at St. Andrews there to see who would, uh, who would win the match. And Yarmo made a putt and put his, put the uh, the putter head up against his shoulder in kind of like a shooting motion. And, and after he made this putt to beat Nick Price and shot at Nick Price, so to speak. <laughs> and we were just sitting there just dumbfounded as to what we were watching. And, and a lot of, a lot of locals, a lot of people in Scotland were very offended by this because it was either weeks or months removed from a school shooting in Scotland um, that was just absolutely horrific and tragic. And a number of people, uh, kids lost their lives. And it was, it was a pretty tone deaf thing to do to say the very least, not to mention the fact that he was doing it to Nick Price, who I think at the time was maybe the number one ranked player in the world. And if I'm not mistaken, also his caddy squeaky who, uh, who, who passed away way too young was, was maybe in, in poor health at the time. So there was a lot going on with Nick. And and it was just stunning to see this happening. And 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 Phil said to me at the time, "My gosh, if that guy ever did something like that to me, I, I don't know what I'd do." So you know, as sure enough, you know the you know the Swedish team advanced, and uh, and of course we get them. The U.S. gets them the next day, and the pairings come out, and it's Sandlin versus Mickelson. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. And uh, we went out there and played the match, and. Uh, uh, to Yarmo's credit, he was playing pretty well. The other, our other two guys, O'Meara and Stricker, were going to win their matches, so the U.S. was going to advance. But on the uh, 12th or 13th hole there in St. Andrews, the next day, he he made a five or six footer for par to go, you know, into increase his lead over Phil and did the same thing. He put his putter up to his shoulder and shot at Phil in this kind of shooting motion, and it was just like, you know, Phil wasn't having it, and and Phil let him know on the next tee that he absolutely wasn't having it. And, uh, it was, a, it was in, in my years as a caddy, you know, w one of the more tense situations that you get involved in out there. And it was like, uh, Holy cow. And these guys were, were nose to nose at one point. And, uh, and, you know, Phil was not, you know, at that point, a major winner or a guy that had been around a long time, but he was a very accomplished player and, and, uh, Yarmo less so. So it was just, it seemed disrespectful, and so when you fast forward, sorry to, for taking so long, but you fast no, forward this is so an long, story. so far to the 99 Ryder Cup, you know, all the, you know, three years later, you know, Yarmo didn't get, he didn't play at all the first, uh, the first two days. There were two or three guys on that team, Coltart, uh, Yarmo, and uh, maybe Vandeveld that didn't play the first two days. And, uh, you know, our team is, is, is four points down, um, we're, we're getting our butts kicked. It, it wasn't that our guys were playing poorly. It's just the, the, the European team was just amazing. And uh, th for me back then in 99, this was, this was pre internet, pre, you know, s cell phones, all this stuff. And when we left the golf course on Saturday night, none of us had any idea what the pairings were. And I just remember going home and saying a small prayer, driving in my car back to the hotel. 
anybody but Sandalin. <laughs> and and sure enough, we got to the course the next day, you know, and, and there it was, you know, 12 guys on each team, this supposed random draw, and Phil gets Yarmo in singles. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh. So we get out there the next day, and, you know, we hadn't seen the entire week, the guy the entire week because he hadn't played. And he comes striding to the tee and fills there, and it's it's tense. And I remember NBC was doing the golf, and they'd sent Mark Rolfing out there to cover this match because they knew there was a history between these two guys. And and one of the craziest things happened uh, on the second green. They they have the first hole, went to the second hole, was a really tough par three. Phil hit a six iron to about 30 feet. Then Yarmo hit this six iron that never left the flag. And we heard this, you know, kind of gasp, if you will, from the American fans behind the green. He literally almost hole it, almost made a hole in one. The ball went about two or three feet behind the hole. And we got up to the green, and I'm cleaning Phil's ball, and I hand it back to him. Phil's going through the process of reading his putt, and Yarmo is just standing there. He's done nothing with his golf ball. It's still three feet behind the hole. And it's definitely some, a putt that you want, you know, you're not going to give to him. It wasn't close enough. But what we didn't realize, and I came to find out later from Yarmo's caddy, is that Yarmo had something like a special coin that he always marked his ball with. And somehow he had a hole in his pocket. And between the first green and the second green, he'd lost this lucky coin or the coin that he used to mark his ball. And he had nothing else to mark his ball with. So he says to his caddy, give me a coin. The caddy's got nothing. So they're not going to ask me. They're not going to ask Phil. He's standing there behind this ball on the second green and he's got no coin to mark his ball with nothing and literally literally you hear this voice from the crowd some guy some spectator that kind of picked out what had been going on a guy goes hey yo yarmo you need a coin to mark your ball and yarmo turns around and goes as a matter of fact i do and all of a sudden coins come raining out of the crowd <laughs> And I swear to you, Chris, we were there. It was just this incredibly surreal moment where there were 20, 30, 40, 50 coins rolling across the green that spectators had thrown at him. <laughs> so we're out there picking up coins. Uh, you know, Yarmo finally picks one up, marks his ball, misses the three-footer, and then topped oh it off the next tee, and Phil went on to, uh, to, to win the match. He topped it? He did. He hit a fairway wood off the next tee and kind of cold topped it, hit it in the heel and, you know, dribbled it, you know, I don't know, 100 yards down, wherever it went. But uh, he was uh, it was just this crazy, crazy moment. Uh, he topped it off the tee, Phil won the hole and went on to win the match easily. Paul Azinger from episode 141 talking about Seve playing against him in the Ryder Cup. And yeah, this won't be the last time we hear from Paul on this either. <laughs> I remember losing that match. And then I got uh, with Chip Beck and we won. And then we played Faldo Woosen in one match. And that was a revenge match for me. I remember telling Chip on the first tee. I mean, there was like, Faldo, Faldo, the flags are going. And they came up. And I, I remember saying to Chip Beck, it was pretty loud. I said, Chipper, I don't know about you, but I'd taken this match personal. And he goes, I love it, Singer. Me too, Singer. <laughs> and we made 11 birdies. <laughs> they made nine birdies. Wow. And we beat them two and one. Then I was really confident. We went and played. I got, yeah, I got lucky. It's so lucky at Ryder Cup because I drew their superstars. Mm -hmm. I could have drawn a bunch of guys you never heard of, but I kept drawing. And it's just a blind draw. It's luck. I was going to say you went up against Seve in the singles. That wasn't prearranged at all. None Captains, of it is. Yeah, it's just a luck fest. Who mm -hmm. do you get? And you know, our strategy was to look for their best players in some respects because they were better than us, and we knew it. But uh, get our hottest players out first or whatever. I was first match out because I was playing so well. Mm. And I plucked Seve, which is the greatest gift ever to get Seve. And then we battled 
right from the beginning. And it's a famous match. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of controversy went with that match. And, you know, I'm, I'm vindicated by it because of Andy McPhee and, and the referee of the match is, you know, tell you what happened. Well, what did happen? Well, he accused me of taking a bad drop on 18. I, I figured you'd probably get to that point. But I was like, Savvy, you, you told us where to drop it. Yeah. I just kept that point between me and the hole and went backwards. Oh, okay. Um, but we had stuff going on the whole match. I called him the king of gamesmanship, and he said the American team's 11 nice guys in Zinger. That was 91, right? Was, oh, yeah, but still. But was, there bleed was a, over from 89, a scuff ball sure. incident from 89. Is that oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, that was from 91. No, that was 89. Yeah, in their singles match. Well, see, I draw Seve on Saturday night, and Curtis walks up to me and says, don't let him pull anything on you tomorrow. So my mindset <laughs> shifts. So then we get to uh, – the first tee and Curtis goes off last and I'm off first. So there's a lot, big gap between those tee times and he comes walking up to me on the first tee. Hey, how are you feeling? Good. Don't let him pull anything on you today. So back then the golf balls were getting shredded by the square grooves mm-hmm. and we were both using square groove wedges. We hit irons off the second tee, three irons, both of us, wedge into the green. He hit it about 12 feet. I hit it about four feet. And, uh, we get up there, and he takes his ball and tosses it to his caddy, Ian, and says, I take this ball out of play. And uh, I was like, Curtis popped in my head. You know? <laughs> That's so My ball was shredded. I had hair. I used a ping wedge back then, and mm-hmm. it really wrecked the golf balls. And you could – excuse me, you could pick my golf ball up by the paint thread <laughs> that was hanging from it. And so I can't take it out of play, though. I could rub that paint thing off of there, but I can't take the ball out. So anyway, I just thought he's pulling something right there. And so I looked at his caddy. I asked, I said, I need to see that ball. And uh, I looked at it and I walked over to Seve and he was already lining up as he squatted down. And he just looked up at me like that. And he's, I said, I don't think he can take this ball out. I said, look at mine. It looks just as bad. He goes, the European rule says this body's no good. <clears throat> I said, well, in the U S you're going to have to play it. <laughs> I said, maybe we should ask the official. So Annie McPhee came in. Um, great guy. He, uh, he says, I'm sorry, Seve, you have to play this ball. Well, the crowd was into it now and they were jeering me. Mm-hmm. The best thing about that too is, is when the crowd, well, actually Seve line that put up from every direction. Oh no. Let me just say this. I looked at Seve and I said, I'm sorry, my ball looks just as bad. And Seve looked at me and he said, no, no, it's okay. If this is the way you want to play today, we can play this way. And I swear, bro, I, my hands do not shake when I play. But at that moment, I was starting to quiver. <laughs> he made the 12-footer. Of course he did. And then as the crowd noise died down, some British guy yelled out, What would you have done with a good ball, Seve? <laughs> and I was thinking, man. I put my ball down. I was like this. I hit this putt that went in the hole and came right back at me. And the crowd just yelled out. or They cheered twice as loud sure. when mine missed. And it was really a rough match after that. We went at it. Um, I didn't think he was hitting it that good. Raymond Floyd comes up to me. I was two down after four in the car. He was all worried. And uh, he's, you all right? I said, I'm great. I said, he's not hitting it that good. He's going to give me a couple holes you watch. He duck hooked it right in the junk on five. Gift. Um, and so he gifted me a couple. And we just did battle right to the 18th hole. And uh, even my caddy was doing battle. It was just awesome, dude. It was like, welcome to the Ryder Cup. And it became, you know, it's in our head. It's in their blood. Mm-hmm. So it's different for them. But my head flipped on Ryder Cup. I'm like, this is it. whoop these boys. 
Next up is Jim Furyk, an interview we did back in 2017 before, of course, that he was the captain in 2018. We talk about the upcoming captaincy, but most importantly, what he learned from playing in them and being an assistant captain. I think you will find this interesting to look back on. This is from Jim Furyk in 2017. Well, that's a good transition because I've got a myriad of things I want to ask about the Ryder Cup. He's kind like of, obsessed. I'm, I'm a big Ryder Cup guy, right. so um, I do want. I want to go back to I'm to four. Like go through like Q and A, like you're going to test my knowledge. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not a trivia. 1923. <laughs> Samuel Ryder. Um, so I, I want to go back to 14 at the press conference. I didn't look up the exact quote, but you famously said something along the lines of, "If it was up to me, I would have changed this shit a long time ago." You're now the captain for the 18 team. So has this shit changed? <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah. I said that in the press conference? Yeah. I was probably trying to avert any attention that was going other way during the press conference. <laughs> look over here. So, if, you look, if you look at You're the tape, the if you looked at the tape of that press conference, I was sitting to the cameras far right, as far right as I could get. I was, if they'd have let me sit off the stage. Because <laughs> I've been in, you know, my, my biggest regret really in, in my whole career is the Ryder Cup's my favorite event. It's, it is the greatest sporting event in golf in my opinion. Uh, and so for me to go into nine of those as a player and have those teams come out two and seven, so losing seven times is my biggest regret. And I've sat in that press conference so many times and, you know, the questions are coming up and they're, you know, starting to point fingers. And we've stayed pretty unified as a team for the most part. And it it just, I'll be honest, it sucks to be up there and yeah. to lose and, and then to immediately, because the losing team, you go right to the, closing ceremonies and then they march the losing team right into the press so you haven't really had a lot of time to digest what just happened you have you sit on the stage and you go through the ceremony and one team's happy and one team's not it's uncomfortable and then you walk over to the press and you know and it starts and so you know i it used to be tiger and phil were on all those teams and they were going to answer 90 percent of the questions right they're going to ask tiger the first question they're going to follow up with phil the captain, the rest of us. I mean, I used to say, I used to say, honestly, I could sit on the one side of the stage, probably pick my nose and no one would notice. <laughs> and uh, try that and so we're walking into the press room and I'm looking around and I said, wow, you know, Phil's here. And I'm looking at all the guys on the team and I said, oh no, like, you know, I've played in eight or nine of these now and I'm the guy. Now. <laughs> I'm going to get the second question. I know it's coming. I mean, I know it's coming. And so they lead in with Tom and, you know, he talks about disappointment and, and we didn't win. And then they lead, you know, come to Phil and I know I'm getting the next question. So I remember thinking, you know, I'm just over here minding my own business. And, and, uh, yeah, I think the quote that I made, if, when you go back and read it is we didn't have a lot of answers at the time, right. you know, there was criticism that we weren't a team, that we weren't together, that we weren't close. Uh, now you read the press and, you know, Jordan and Justin and they're all buddies and they hang out off the course and everyone's tight. I mean, winning solves a lot of issues when you look at it, you know, when, mm -hmm. when, when you're, when your football team is winning, the coach is the greatest coach <laughs> in the world. And when it wasn't that long ago, Mike Tomlin was a heel, right? Now they're winning and he's the greatest coach ever. It's everyone jumps on that bandwagon as, as far as it's an easy story. And so, uh, you know, for us though, as a team, we kept coming up, empty and, and losing those events and we were looking for answers and so I think when the press looked and said what's going to change it and I was like well if it was that easy we'd be winning <laughs> right, right? If, if it were that easy we've, we've all worked hard we've all um we, we've all tried to make it better but you know we keep coming out on a losing end and 
And so I think, you know, when we all got together in West Palm as, as a group and they, you know, it was called the task force, the Ryder cup task force, which not the best name, but I think it's, it, it helped us get together as players, as past captains, as the group as PJ of America as a whole to kind of get together, band our thoughts together and uh, try to create a plan for the future and, and a long-term plan for the future of what can we do in any way to help this team improve and to get better and, and give them the best opportunity to win. And, and now we've had some success. We want to ride our cup. We want a president's cup. And I read the stories and, you know, it all goes back to, boy, I don't know what they talked about in that room, but well, you know, the president's cup team has had success for a lot of years. You know, Fred couples ran a great ship, went to Jay Haas. They passed it down to Steve Stricker. Um, you know, I, I think that would be almost a shot to them to say that the task force made us, made us good in that event. But, um, you know, the Ryder Cup committee has worked hard to give the team and the captain an opportunity to succeed. And I think one thing we can't do is look and say, well, just because of those meetings, this team's playing great now. It, you know, the, the kids, you look at the guys that played in the Ryder Cup and the shots that were hit and the quality of not only the veteran play, but young players stepping up, like a Brooks Kepka playing in his first Ryder Cup. Um, they've hit some great shots and they've played amazing. And you got – Phil Mickelson shooting whatever it was, 52, and coming out with a half against Sergio in one of the greatest Ryder Cup matches ever on uh, on Sunday. So the guys have played really good golf. Um, our, our job as captains, our job uh, with the Ryder Cup committee and the PGA of America is just to be able to set an atmosphere and give, uh, give the guys on the golf course every opportunity to be able to compete and to play well. And, and, and Davis did a great job uh, – both in his first time as captain and his second time as captain is really kind of setting that atmosphere and, and letting the guys go out and play and play free. And uh, it was fun to watch. It was fun to be there as a captain. And, and uh, you know, I feel like we all felt like we had a little part in it, but I'm so proud of and happy. Really not proud's even a bad word. Uh, I'm so happy for the guys that played on that 16 team to watch them have success because – my era didn't have that much success, you know, and only two wins. We're going to take a quick break here to check in with our friends at Original Penguin. It's almost hoodie season getting down here in Florida. I think I've got four or five of the same lightweight Original Penguin hoodies. I think I've got, literally got their entire color catalog at the, the lightweight hoodie that they w produce that I wear almost every day. Uh, I'm actually not wearing Original Penguin right now, which is a little bit of an upset, a little bit of a shock, because almost literally every day of my life, I'm wearing some Original Penguin shorts. I'm almost always wearing Original Penguin shorts when we play golf. You'll see those in a lot of our videos. Of course, we're a big sponsor of season five of Taurus Sauce in the Carolinas. We are huge fans of all of the offerings at Original Penguin. They've got, you know, they got suits, they got duffel bags, they got dress shirts, they got casual shirts, hoodies, sweaters, jackets, you name it, sweatpants, joggers. I just learned what joggers are thanks to a pair of joggers that they sent me, which I just thought were normal sweatpants. But you can go to OriginalPenguin.com. You can use promo code NLU20 to get 20% off your purchases starting today up until October 14th. Again, OriginalPenguin.com. Use promo code NLU20 for 20% off uh, one of our favorite apparel companies in the world. So without any further delay, let's get back to the pod. Next up, one of my favorites from the old days, episode 125, sat down with Marco Mira and Curtis Strange and, of course, worked in some Ryder Cup stuff. Ryder Cup? He, my, my, another oh, memory gosh. of, of Mark go. and I were, here we go, 1985 Ryder Cup, Belfry. Mm -hmm. Now, it's my first one. I don't care. Yeah, you're, I'm nervous. Hard Come on, man. <laughs> so we're playing first tee shot, alternate shot. We choose Mark to hit the first shot because of <laughs> the way the horse, the horse course 
leads up to the way we play. You were the horse that week, my that's for par sure. Par four, straight as an arrow, you Belfry, boring 10. par four. I hit my second shot out of the tented village, out of some bowl of pasta. It went so far to the right. <laughs> I took it off the right tents, off to the right of the Belfry on the first hole. And, uh, you know, obviously I was extremely nervous, Chris. I mean, what could you say? Your first Ryder Cup, <laughs> I'm playing with Curtis Train. And, you know, he had a little more experience than I did, and he was a little cooler. Jeez, release the club a little bit, though. Oh, I'm sorry. I was sake. worried about snap hooking it over in the left gunch. <laughs> so I hung it to the right. And you were just, just talking about it was a limiting perfect. left miss. Yeah. I, I, I played the practice rounds, and I saw those tents to the right of the bunker over there, and I figured the pitch on the tent's just perfect. If I flame it, it's not out of bounds. It'll come right off the tent. I, he goes, Bumper bowling. He goes, we're walking off the tee. He goes, now that was really something to be hold. I mean, that was spectacular <laughs> tee shot there. I'm, all, I'm like, hey, just go find it. Put it up there by the green. I'll pitch it up there. You'll make a par. And I, I, I think we won our we match. We beat their day. ass. Come on. You just got to get past ass. that first shot, right? Well, I mean, everybody's nervous on the first tee. Oh, yeah. You're not, you're not human. Oh, absolutely. Did you just want to have the, the tee shot on number 10? Is that why you uh, you, you want to oh, be all, wow. even holes? Well, I laid up there every time. I, wow. didn't, I didn't. You're on the wrong that. podcast for I that. I didn't have. Oh, sorry. Well, <laughs> you know, I did go for it one time. But, you know, if you, what a great match play hole. Mm-hmm. Drivable par four over water. And it depends on how you stand in the match is how you, what your strategy is on the hole. But that, that goes way back. But uh, Ryder Cup is, is one of the greatest weeks you'll ever be a part of. I remember that same year in 85. A couple things happened. One of the matches I play with Tom Watson is my partner. And, of course, you know, on the first screen, I'm, I'm obviously nervous playing with Tom. And he's trying to give me, like, a putting lesson. And I'm like, listen, don't worry about me. You just need to play good. You know what I mean? I, I'm just this rookie kid playing in my first Ryder Cup, trying not to throw up on myself. And here I got Tom Watson trying to give me a putting lesson. I, 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 I hope you play well because if you don't, this could be a problem for our team. And we did okay. And. And Curtis has probably tons of stories, too. And then later that week, I was paired with Lanny Watkins, and we played against Seve Ballesteros and Manuel Pinero. And they talk about the Ryder Cup today where the couple of Ryder Cup teams, I was on two losing teams, two winning teams, and a tying team. So I saw all aspects of what the Ryder Cup was all about. And it's interesting because that first year, I remember they introduced myself on the tee. We were playing best ball against Ballesteros and, and Pinero, and and – you know, people clapped. They didn't know who Mark Romero was, and that was fine. But then they introduced Lanny Watkins, and they, like, booed. There was, like, about 15 people. Boo. I could hear the, you know, and Curtis will tell you that. So everybody acted like when we were played in America, if we won, you know, they were the ugly Americans, this and that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. When we played at the Belfry, and you're in Birmingham, England, mm-hmm. uh, it can get a little You rowdy. caught some abuse over there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we're walking off the tee, and I looked at Lanny, and I'm like, and Lanny came over and he goes, let me tell you what, M.O., you don't say one effing word to these people. I will handle everything. You just play golf. And you got to know Lanny. Lanny and Curtis go way back. He's got the head shaking and everything. We drilled him like six and five or something like that. And Lanny was just loving every minute of it. Does that fit into the spirit of the competition, do you think? Or does it border, at least in that era, did it border on the edge of being kind of inappropriate or against the spirit of the game? Or did no, you... I just think that it's a different event. You know, sure. golf's usually an individual game. And all of a sudden, you know, you throw the team concept. And for so many years, you know, when Arnold and Jack and everybody, the U.S. always dominated the Ryder Cup. And it never really became sure. a big enough deal until Europe won the Ryder Cup and took it away from America. In 85. When we, yeah, in, in 1983, right. my first Ryder Cup, there was probably 1,500 pe- people, 1,500 people out at Palm Beach Sunday afternoon at the end of the matches. We went to the Belfry in 85. And there's always a lot of people over there. And... 
we lost and we came back in 87 to Muirfield Village and there was 25,000 out there on Sunday. And that was the first time the Euros had won on U.S. Yeah, soil, yeah. Muirfield. But they, it was, it changed overnight. Mm -hmm. Much like the America's Cup. Nobody yeah. paid attention until you lost. Mm -hmm. And uh, it changed a great deal. But it also changed for one very big reason, which for the names of Langer, Lyle, Woosnam, Seve, Torrance. and Faldo. Those five, that five nucleus was a big part of their, their Ryder Cups for, for 15 years, and they were five of the top 12, 15 players in the world. So they were tough to beat. More Jim Furyk from 2017, again, talking about long-term plans for the U.S. side in the Ryder Cup. I don't know. There wasn't like a list made that here's what we're going to do for the next four or five years, but the idea was uh, one of the important things I came out with it was we're going to, one, identify the future captains, and we're going to give them some experience. So I think one of the things we've done to the captain in the past, I think they've all done a good job, but I think they all would have liked to have probably been a vice captain to start with. And I think I might, out of the nine captains, nine times I played, I played for eight captains, maybe one or two of them had experience as a vice captain before. I think Davis was a vice for Corey, and Corey might have been a vice captain for a layman. I can't remember. But there was only one or two that had any experience at all as a captain. They all played in a lot of Ryder Cups. But to be behind the scenes, to see the decisions that have to be made, the timing of those decisions, um, interaction with the, with the uh, team, I, I think is valuable. So for me to do it at the President's Cup twice for Jay Haas and for Steve Stricker and to also be a vice captain for Davis the last Ryder Cup is invaluable for me. So that's one of the things we wanted to do. Two, I think um, kind of develop more of a long-term plan instead of uh, we have to win now. You know, it was kind of – the idea was let's let's look ahead. Let's look ten years, twenty years into the future. What's it going to take to build? And I think any major corporation would look at their business that way. You want to be successful now, but what's going to help carry us? Let's in the back of our mind, what's going to carry us in the next ten Ryder Cups? And the goal would be to try to have a winning record for the next twenty years. That would be a success, especially coming off of twenty lean years where we, you know, went two and seven or two and eight. Um, and I guess last, a lot of it was. What's going to help the players, you know, succeed? How? Wh what can we do? And, and the idea was the PGA of America committed to the players and the captains. We'll do whatever it takes. And um, so Davis left me with some wise, wise words uh, that I'll never forget. When decisions are made, and especially heat of the battle, heat of the moment, or leading up to the Ryder Cup, because a lot of decisions we made in the last couple of months. The one question he said he always asked himself was, "Will this help the team?" You know, there's going to be a lot of chaos and a lot of noise and, um, you know, even picking uniforms. I mean, I want the guys to be comfortable. Will this help the team in, in all the decisions? So, um, you know, one thing as a captain we always want is I want my players comfortable. I want them knowing exactly who they're going to be playing with. I don't want to throw them any curveballs Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I want, want there to be a nice game plan going into the Ryder Cup, right? And I don't really want to veer from that game plan too much. We'll have a – you know, A plan, a B plan, you know, and a backup plan. And, and I want them going in and prepare. The idea is they're going to play the tour championship and someone's going to be trying to win $10 million the day that we leave for the Ryder Cup, right? <laughs> I'm thankful to have that week off the week right before the Ryder Cup. Yeah. I think that gives me a chance to talk to the guys to prepare. Who do you want to play with? Who do you think complements your game? Uh, you know, 
sometimes you're probably you thankful want, that the year you won the tour championship, you didn't have to go play. The I did. Cup I did. That. I hopped right you on did? a plane. Oh, that was Celtic Manor. Yeah, that was Celtic Manor. I hopped right on a plane. Oh, I never I got a chance to celebrate. I think I had a beer at the hotel. Oh, <laughs> we hopped on a plane, went over there, and it was like full, full mode, you know, right wow. into Ryder Cup. Um, so I know what what that guy. I only know exactly how he feels. Yeah. I lived it. Here's more from Paul Azinger. That's the way I thought. I mean, the passion that people talk about. I, get, I talk about the Ryder Cup on every podcast because the, the the stories that come from it are better than anything that comes from stroke play events. That's for There's sure. There's a lot of stuff, man. It happens in those matches. You know, on ten, I hit it to the right of the green over there, going for the green in '89. And seven, when I got up, it was on some lady's plastic whatever. And when I got, I had to drop closer. It kept going closer to the green. And when I stood up. Before I dropped, I stood up and bumped into Seve. He goes, I want to know right where your ball was. And I mean, it was like that out there. <laughs> and I, he, then he grabbed his ball and tried to place it all around. And thank God it didn't stay anywhere. And I had to set mine on a little tuft of grass to get it to stay. And he's like, now you have a perfect lie. And was like, it was just like we went at it. But, you know, we were good friends before the Ryder Cup. And I think we were just fine after. Everybody thinks we hated each other and all that. You know, Seve taught me as much as anybody, too. Mm-hmm. He was great. Um, to Golf be rivalry is different than kind of a personal dislike. The Ryder Cup's right? different. Yeah, it, there was a passion there. You know, we were both patriotic, I guess, in some respects, and then we were very passionate. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it boils over to '91, the War by the Shore. You and Chip Beck get paired against Seve and yeah. uh, Jose Maria. Yeah. And was it the first match that there was a, the, the the ball compression incident? Can you walk us through what happened there? See, I, I hate that it's remembered for ball compression incident, but that's what it's remembered for. And I got four of those golf balls brand new sitting in my room that I found in my old Ryder Cup bag. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they took a bad drop on number two that the official let them get away with. They played it. They broke the rule, basically. They hit a ball that they couldn't tell went in the hazard. Then they played a provisional, which is for a lost ball. And then they went back and dropped like the ball, like they knew the ball went in hazard, but they didn't know. And it was controversial, but we won the hole. And then the fourth hole, Seve hooked it in the junk. And the official yells out, he says, five minutes is up. And then literally within 10 seconds, they found the ball and he let them play it. And I just was ape about that. And Chipper's like, calm down. I said, no, man, he can't do it. So that was how that match started. Okay. Didn't know that. Yes, and I actually requested another official. So we had another official come in. We had two officials on that match. Then on 10-T, they accused us of using the wrong compression ball, which we did. And it was totally my fault. But it was a 90 compression titleist versus a 100 compression titleist, and we were on the first par five. Here's how it works. If, if the 100 compression titleist goes off number one, the 100 compression titleist has to go first off every odd hole the rest of the day. Okay. That's as simple as what it is. That, that 90 compression ball, which was red, if it goes off number two, it goes off every even hole the rest of the day. When is that still to, that way? You can alternate balls? I don't know what okay. the rule is now. They've, changed, they've done a bunch of changes. Okay. But I think it's a one-ball rule now, actually. Yeah, I think to so. Tell you the truth, I do know what it is. Um, yeah, so uh, – my pea brain was just figuring, well, if you hit my ball off the tee, then I lay or lay up. No, if I hit your ball off the tee, or if you hit my no, – no, no, here's what it was. If you hit my ball off the tee, you lay up, I get to hit my ball into the green. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. And they caught that, and that's illegal. But they didn't call it. It was on seven. Eight, we played normal. Nine, we played normal. So they tried to call us on it, I guess, on 10 tee. And we were two up or three up or something. It shook us up. 
I'm sorry it was hard for me to remember exactly that no, sequence, it's, but that's it's how it went. Understandable. Yeah, was, this is Paul Azinger here, completely confused. 27 years ago. What happened. But, um, yeah, anyway, it was it was ugly. I always wondered how they could tell. How would they even know? I guess it was the color of the ball was different. That's No, just the logo. Just the just Titleist the, stamp and the number on the ball. How did they notice that? Black or red. They crazy. heard us talking about it. Oh, okay. I was free and talk. We were talking about it like yeah. it was a great strat. Boy, aren't we smart. Right. But, boy, we Messed butchered it, it because if you hit a black ball off the first tee, it's got to be off every odd hole. And it just seemed like that kind of triggered the flames a little bit for that entire Ryder Cup. made it Ryder great Cup. in the yeah. end. That yeah. little bit of controversy made the Ryder Cup great. It made Actually, Americans really started to care about the Ryder Cup. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I never wanted to rub anybody's nose in anything either, and I just was trying to protect what we were doing. You know, even when we won the Ryder Cup, you know, I felt so bad that Langer missed a putt in 91 that I didn't run out there and celebrate. Yeah, it's hard to watch. I put my arm around her, and I just like we just watched. I didn't go out there and celebrate because I knew how much that would have affected me. Then the next year, '93, I was the last match out against Faldo, and I knew what happened to Langer. You know, so that'll make. I was nervous all day that day. Mm-hmm. Your match ended up the the club the cup had been clinched by the time you and Faldo got to eighteen. Yeah, I right? was one down. Yeah, don't tell me you didn't want to. Win that hole to make sure you had that match. I did, but once, once he missed his putt, and I had about a 12 or 14-footer for birdie, he could have pain stewarded me and said, oh, that's good, and we'd have tied the match, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. But he didn't. He sat there at arms folded, and I was like thinking, man, Fowler should be giving me this putt. Would you have given it to him? Probably not. No way. <laughs> no way. He looked at me like, oh, it never crossed my mind, you know? Yeah, no way. you got to make you putt that. Oh yeah, I put it and I made it. Thank yep. God. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I was that that day. I was a wreck all day. In ninety one, you're saying ninety three. Oh, ninety three, but just against Faldo. Last match out, knowing it's coming down to us. Here's Bones again with a story from his first Ryder Cup. It's just become so big. Um, I, when I went over in '93 just to watch, I, I was gonna be outside the ropes and and uh, was there literally a matter of minutes earlier in the week and. And they asked me to come inside the ropes and work for the team. So basically, it, the best way for me to answer your question is now there's all these assistant captains and assistant caddy captains, if you will, to, to you know leave no stone unturned in terms of taking care of people, taking care of the players and the caddies. And there was none back in 93. So I ended up being a gopher, if you will, for the team and just running errands all week long. And um, there was literally a situation uh, in 93 when the players were about to tee off on Friday. Uh, Davis Love and Tom Kite were going to be the, f- the first group out. And there was a two-hour fog delay. And uh, those guys were hanging out in the team room just climbing the walls because they basically told them, you- you've warmed up now. We're going to come in and grab you guys and we'll go straight to the tee and- when it's time to go ultimately. So the players were in there just kind of wasting time, just, you know, just – itching to get out there and Fred Couples was going through everybody's bag. The bags were neatly stacked against the wall. They're standing up and was going through everybody's bag, looking at clubs. And he went over to Davis loves and was looking at one of his irons, took out his nine iron, waggled it. And the head fell off the shaft What? and bounced down this marble staircase. And we all happened to be standing there and we're just, everyone's just aghast. Everybody heard this thing bounced around and saw what had happened. And this man comes in the front door of the team room said, Mr. Love, Mr. Kite, you've got five minutes and we're going to go tee off. So (laughs) Davis Love grabs this head of this and and the shaft and gives it to me and says, go get this fixed. So there I was, a guy who just the day before had been over there just to kind of watch and take in this Ryder Cup. And I was running across these fields somewhere in northern England looking for some guy with a trailer with epoxy on it. (laughs) 
And <laughs> and this is not the, the era of equipment trucks all exactly. over the place. Exactly. No Tylus truck, no Callaway truck, no anything. It was literally some guy who had this homemade trailer that was there just in case a disaster happened. And we found the guy, got the club, re-epoxy, gave it to him. And later that week on Sunday, Davis came to the last hole, had to make par on the last hole to win the Ryder Cup, hit this amazing drive, hit a short iron on the green and two-putted to win the Ryder Cup and came over to me and said, that was your nine iron that no you got fixed and he hit into the green. So it was like kind of my uh, get welcome to the Ryder Cup moment and one of the greatest memories I've always had of that event. Here's Lanny Watkins telling just a, a plethora of great Ryder Cup stories. The 1983 Ryder Cup at PGA National Take us to what happened there down the stretch and uh, who the hero of that one was. Well, it was uh, it, it was basically down to uh, we needed – the two, last two Americans on the course were Tom Watson and myself. Watson's playing Bernard Gallagher. He's two up and two to play. He needs to win. I'm one down playing 18, and I've had a match. I'm playing Jose Maria Canizares. I've had a match I should have beat him five and four. I mean, he hold it from all over the place. First hole is a great example. I had a six-footer for birdie. He's got a 50-footer for par. We tie the hole. I mean, that, that happened all day long. I'm one down going to 16. I hit two iron 12 feet behind the hole. He hits it in the lake to the right. The ball is moving in the water, and he chops it out of the water on the green, 40 feet, holds it. I missed a 12-footer. We tie that hole. I actually made a six-footer at 17 to stay alive. Jeez. So, I mean, all this is going on. We get to 18, and they, the whole everybody is there and said, you have to win this hole for us to win. And I, I've got the whole team there except for Watson. I mean, i got Fuzzy and Curtis and Kite and Jay Haas. They're all there, you know, watching Jack's me play this captain. hole. And, I, and Jack's there, the captain. Yeah, he's not intimidating at all. <laughs> I hit a really good drive at 18. Uh, actually hit it past Canizares. He hit three wood in this – the hole back then was a little different than it is now. There was a bit of water you had to hit over the corner or you could lay up short and hit a longer shot in there. He hit a great three-wood, so it kind of forced me into being aggressive anyway. And I remember I hit three-wood second shot right over the corner of the water. It's I hammered it, and Curtis Strange starts yelling at my ball, get up, get up. I said, don't worry, it's solid. So, I mean, so and I had 72 yards left of the flag. I'm, Ken Azaris was away. He kind of hit it fat to the front edge of the green. And then I had 72 yards and whole locations back up on top of a little uh, ridge. And I drove a little low 56 degree sandwich in there, skipped it right back to about a foot. And uh, game, set, and match. Won the Ryder Cup. <laughs> that was it. We won 14 and a half, 13 and a half. Most nervous you've ever been over a shot? Probably. Although I've always thought that my pace of play helped me in situations like that. A lot of times before I could think of the of the magnitude of what I'm doing, I've already hit the shot. Hmm. There are times in my career that I hit a shot, I'd be sitting there thinking, man, I need to make birdie to win or I've got to hit this close. And halfway through thinking about that, I, never mind, the ball's already in the air going at the flag. You know, I hit it on I hit I hit it a lot of times on autopilot. I played that fast. I think that was one of those shots. I saw what I wanted to do. I knew the shot I wanted to hit, and it just – I kind of did it before I knew what I was doing, if you will. I was nervous. But I will say this. I took that shot that I was probably the most nervous I've ever been hitting any shot was that one, and I've channeled that into my career later that if I can do that, I can handle anything else that comes down the line. 
Let's say your reaction after that was just a look of oh. just determination and just it wasn't really even relief. It was just like yes. Yeah. Kind well, of and I went. I remember going up to the edge of the green. Kite slapped me on the back and way to go. And I went to say something. And nothing came out. Really? Yeah. It was kind of wild. So. <laughs> and I must admit that that was the best celebration of all time with Nicholas that night. It was. It was. That well, okay. Well, let's that stop was, right there. Then. Well, what was, did that? What was that? What did that look like? It started with when when Fuzzy grabbed a magnum of champagne in the team room and, and sprayed the crowd. It was became an instant wet T-shirt contest for the wives. I mean, it was uh, I I grabbed a bottle of champagne. If you remember who Joe Black was with the PGA, very staid, straight. I grabbed him behind the collar, poured a whole bottle of champagne down his back. We're drinking from the Ryder Cup. Uh, Nicholas waterboarded his wa- barber with the Ryder Cup. I mean, he, he's he's like, you know, he, it's full of champagne. Barbara, have a sip of, from the Ryder Cup, sure. And he, as she took a sip, he grabbed her head and dumped the whole thing. I mean, it was it was <laughs> Jack Nicholas. Yeah, <laughs> Jack waterboarded Barbara with the Ryder Cup. I mean, it was the damnedest thing you've ever seen. So it was uh, it was good stuff, but it was. Had a picture of Jack with a champagne cork in his mouth holding the cup. I mean, it was, there was some really cool stuff from that. that it was quite a party. The damnedest thing was, we all went and cleaned up. We destroyed this suite at PGA. That you know, we go to the dinner. We come back. This suite is they've cleaned it up. It's perfect, and we went at it again. <laughs> I remember carrying Crenshaw thing. and laying him on his bed. Really? Yeah. I mean, literally, he couldn't. He couldn't talk. I mean, it was it was quite a night. It was a hell of a celebration. What what makes people so much more relaxed in that setting, or what is it? Just the opportunity to to share an actual victory with people that you want it with. You know, we had a team, a lot of good friends on that on that team. I mean, you know, we're three Wake Forest guys on that team: mm-hmm. Jay Haas, Curtis Strange, and myself. We had that in common. Ben and I have been friends. Uh, Jack and I were friends. I mean, I look at who's on that team. Fuzzy was a friend. Yeah, I mean. We were all pretty close back then, you know, much like the young guys are today, okay? We were all about the same age. We were all pretty well established in our careers at that time. I'm trying to think if there was anybody on that team that was maybe a rookie. Gil Morgan was there, played well. He played with my partner in one of the matches. Uh, but, you know, overall it was like a bunch of guys that were had very similar careers at that point in time. Yeah. What's your favorite go-to Ryder Cup story? Your favorite memory, favorite go-to story? May have already told it on here, but. Well, I mean, I've always, you know, because he was such an integral part of it, it's probably always Seve. You had to get back in his face. You could not let him intimidate you. I was going to say, did you ever have any personal run-ins? Yeah. First hole, 1985, I think, where I'm playing with Marco Mira in the morning the second day. At the Belfry, uh, playing the, sec- the second day at the Belfry in the morning, Marco Mary and I were playing Seve and I think Manuel Panero going down the first hole, best ball. We get on the green, and I've got about a 20, 25 footer for birdie. Seve's about 12 feet. His coin's in my line. I had him move it. I pulled my putt. It hit his coin. It bounced right. Went in the hole. He was livid. You had me. You had me do that on purpose. You had me move my coin so you can make that putt. I said, yes. I got right in his face. I said, yes, Evie, I'm that blanking good. Don't forget it. <laughs> first hole. This is O'Meara's first Ryder Cup match ever. He gets as white as a sheet standing on the first green line. What's going on? I said, love it. Let's go kick. The-. We had him six down and six to play. 
Oh my God, that's amazing! But I'm, we uh, first hole, I pull a putt, hit his coin, goes and he just. I did it on purpose because the only way I could make the putt was aim at a dime. <laughs> I was you know, say. over here, fifteen feet from me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and bank it off this dime to get it in the hole. Yeah, right. I'm that good. <laughs> So I, I got right. I said, "Yeah, I'm that good. Don't forget it. You know, just right in his face." <laughs> well, Zinger tells a story too of at the Belfry. Um, I forget who was who was. Somebody came up to him before he's getting ready to play Seve, and before the match, somebody comes up to him and says, uh, "Don't let him pull any stuff on you." And so, like the second hole, he has a scuff on his ball, and, and Seve's like, I, "I'm taking this ball out of play," and Zinger wouldn't let him do it. When like he look looking back, Zinger's like, yeah, I probably should have let him, but I had this mindset of like, I'm not letting him get away with anything. So, yeah. I mean, how where does it start? I mean, how much of a reputation do you do you already have to have? Well, he had a, he had it back from day one. I mean, I played him, I played him four times in Ryder Cup, and I was four and zero against him. So that was a good start. So uh, Larry Nelson, I beat he and uh, Antonio Garrido uh, three straight matches in '79. So. Yeah, and then Larry beat him in singles. So Seve's very first Ryder Cup ever, he lost four matches mm-hmm. to start. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you had to you. you, you know, he, he just was. I know when I was captain, Tom Lehman was going off first against him, and Curtis Strange and I both got Lehman, and we told me said he is going to pull something. Go right back at him. Don't let him get the upper hand. It won't make sense what he's trying to do, but just go right back after him. And he did on the twelfth hole and. Layman went right back after him. Layman beat him. Hmm. I was going to say, it's always just weird to me how, how that approach almost gets celebrated, you know? And it sounds like, from, from your perspective, it's not something that should be praised nearly as much as no, it is. No, not yeah. at all. I, 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 think it's, I think a lot of the antagonism in the Ryder Cup came from, from Seve's behavior, you know, being in everybody's business. I think, you know, he, what the things he did would probably tick us off so much that, you know, we would get more – upset at, at what was happening and you get more defensive on stuff so there's no question you know that i mean i think he was if there had to be an antagonist going back in all the Ryder cups and when everything started i think you, the arrow points you know directly at seve and no one else first time that he played in 79 larry nelson and i played him uh and each time we played he and garrido we beat him worse each time uh we beat him two and one then we beat him i think three and two then uh, when we beat him five and four in auction shot, that 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 was a day I'll never forget because uh, we're playing in, in the afternoon, and I birdied the first five holes. Larry birdied six. I birdied seven. Larry eagled eight. We were nine under through eight holes. We ended up, you know, I had a two footer. I had to two putt from two feet to close them out five and three or five and four, whatever it was. Well, Seve didn't give it to me, so oh, I just, I, knew that was I just, I just backhanded it in. <laughs> you did backhand. Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Did you tell him you're that bleeping good? <laughs> I told him that later. Uh, that was at the Belfry with with O'Meara and that and that. But, I mean, that was just. And the cool thing about that was after I told him that, I got Mark kind of turned on. We lit it up. We were six up and six to play. Well, they won a couple of holes to stay alive, but we, you know, we were going to win. All we had to do was tie one hole of the last six holes. So we, you know, we were up there. So it was, that was always those are the ones I remember. Those were the fun parts, the, the good ones, the 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 celebration stories with Nicholas at, at PGA in, in '83. We got to see a side of Jack people don't normally see. Let his hair down, so to speak. We had dinner at their the entire team. You know, has dinners every night starting on 
what is it, Friday night or, or before, I guess Thursday night before the first round. So we had three straight nights of dinners at Jack's house. He was that close to where we were playing. So instead of having eating in the team room or right there, we went to his house every night for a little cookout. Wow. Now that was seriously cool. Yeah. You know, and we're all, and the interesting, interesting thing about Jack's house, we're walking around, where's your stuff? He doesn't have half his trophies out. I mean, we're, everybody wants to see the different trophy. Nothing's out. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> it's got them stored away somewhere in the garage. <laughs> well, I was, when I was talking to IMG about going with them, I was in New York talking to Mark McCormick way back in the early 70s. And he said, you know, he's trying to impress me, you know, like, this is Arnold Palmer's office over here. Well, like Arnold's got an office everywhere that they've got a building, right? So, so and he opened the closet door. There's a master's replica sitting in the closet on the shelf. I thought, what's it in there for? <laughs> you know, I mean, the things you see and uh, it's anyway, it's kind of different. Next up, Justin Thomas. Shortly after the 2018 Ryder Cup, talking about his experience in France. I can't even come close to comparing, you know, Liberty and then um, Le Golf National. I mean, it just was so, you know, you look at the first tee alone Oof. and it just was, I mean, just the, the nerves that I had at the Ryder Cup were something that I've never experienced before. And uh, what was it like? I mean, what, what in what way? Just like it, as you hold the club, it's, it feels totally I different. Mean, I mean, I tell everyone that. So, like, I hit five wood off the first tee. And um, I when I hit five wood off the tee, I don't – or off of the tee box, I don't put it on a tee. I just – I put it on the ground so I can just kind of yeah. cover it a little bit more. And I just tell everybody that if I had to put it on a tee, I don't think I could have. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Jordan and I were walking over the bridge and I mean, we had everything all kind of planned out, but we hadn't really discussed, you know, do, do you want to go first? Do I want to go first? I think it, in best ball, it's just so much of um, just kind of whatever the mo is, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. we're walking, he's like, you know, you want me to go first? You, you want to go? And I was just like, I'll go. I'm going. Just get it out and of the way. And he just was like, okay, just kind of let me go. But it was – I just was, man, it, especially because in past I've learned that when I'm nervous my miss is left, and that's not a good miss there. So, I mean, I'm just <laughs> – Well, it's got to be, I would imagine, at least how I am with the first tee that I'm somewhat nervous about. If I can put driver on it, I'm fine. It's oh, yeah. A big old club head. Yeah. But that big, tee, that was cruel. Everyone's got to hit irons cold. and woods. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, it's just the rough. You know, if you hit it in it, you really don't have a chance. But it just is – yeah, I mean, it, I was – Jordan did such a great job with me and just kind of getting me relaxed and kind of eased into it. And Because um, you were, you were in my mind, amped, nervous. Nervous might not be the right word. It's you were anxious. Like, you were you, – you seemed very prepared for it. Yeah. That you were ready to do it. Mm -hmm. You weren't afraid to take the crowd on. You were animated. Yeah. And it's very – it's always you – don't, you don't really know who's going to come out and be – kind of play that role. I mean, we we saw it with Patrick Reed in 2014. We didn't know he was going to be like that and, and just yeah. embrace the moment like that. And some people get, you know, pucker up a little bit more. So yeah. did your President's Cup experience, because it was kind of, it's still odd to believe that was your only Ryder Cup experience. Did your President Cup, President's Cup experience help in that regard? Yeah, I think so. And yeah. I told, I was talking to Xander about that a little bit. And I was like, um, in Atlanta, I said, dude, I think that it's you have this I was talking to Cantley as well as like I think that you have this so perfectly mapped out to where I, I think it's so big to play in a presence cup first I mean obviously the they were going to be just fine if they didn't mm -hmm. and then they play Ryder Cup but just uh, this the experience I mean it's just like coming down the stretch in a major with a chance to win I mean you can learn from it but you there's a good chance that a lot of those guys in the team room are going to be you know guys that are going to be in your team room at the at the Ryder Cup 
but also the vice captains, you know, the, the, the guys that, you know, like I got to know David Duvall at the, at the Ryder Cup, and I didn't really know him that well before, you know, and then Furyk at the President's Cup, and Freddie, I didn't really know that well, and now I feel like I know, so it's just getting to know those guys and being comfortable um, around them, but just, you know, knowing the guys in the team room of things that, I think the President's Cup is kind of a good one for I, I probably observed a little bit more, especially in the in the team setting, just in the team meetings or whatever it might be. And, and I understand that I I want to be a, a leader of a team, but I was trying to kind of understand my role and, mm-hmm. and figure out what's appropriate to say, what not appropriate to say, because the Ryder Cup, I definitely felt like I was a little bit more vocal because, you know, I wanted to be and I felt that it was appropriate. Looking back at the Ryder Cup of 2018, it's a weird week for you. I'd imagine like you've probably felt like you did all you could. You went four and one. You led the team in points, but the team got smoked. So how do you how do you separate out the two? I mean, obviously you'd rather have the team win, but sure. does it sting to talk about the Ryder Cup, or do you look back on it fondly? It's got to be hard on an individual basis. Yeah, it I don't is. think it's selfish to say you look back fondly on well, it. Well, I. I- I look back fondly because I did everything that I could. Right. I mean, it's that's the thing that's hard about the Ryder Cup or any team match is that literally the only thing I can control is my match, and I did everything that I possibly could. And I would like to think I was a good teammate in terms of either pumping guys up or getting them, you know, or, or just doing anything I could to try to help out. But, no, I mean, it just was something where we just got outplayed and, and you know, some guys just didn't, didn't play very well for us. It's just the fact of the matter, and it's not like it's, um, you know, you can't put it on any – you can't put it on Captain Furyk. You can't do anything about this. It's just you can look at it any way you want, but the fact of the matter, they played better than us, and, and we got smoked. So that's uh, that's that's where I net out on a lot of it is I, I don't have the records in front of me, but Phil has been on every Ryder Cup team. He was going to get picked. Like That's just how it was going to go, and I think don't think he won a point. Tiger literally won the week before. Like So it was not like he wasn't in form. He went 0-3. Bryson was just absolutely on fire leading into the Ryder Cup and didn't win a point. So at a certain point, it's just like you got to play golf, and and it didn't happen. Did you sense, I guess, at what point did you start to sense, if you did, that there was going to be some potential drama around uh, maybe the pairings or kind of all the things that that fell out afterward? Not until it happened. Really? Yeah. Um, No, I didn't. uh, I don't think anybody really felt that. Well, one person felt that way, but everybody else I thought was fine, and um, we all were fine. It just was. I think it's easy when, when something bad like that happens. It's um, you want to look at something or, or kind of uh, cope with it a certain way. And I think that's just kind of what happened. But yeah, it was like we said. It's just we just got we just got our brain, brains beat in. Well, and also leading up to it from conversations you and I had, it you know the the potential pairings you were throwing out were even different than what they ended up being. So mm-hmm. it didn't sound like it was all totally decided upon before you went there. Who was going to play with who, or that. You know, Spieth and Reed were going to break up, and you and Jordan were only going to play together. It, it, that didn't seem to be the case leading up to it. Is that right in saying? Yeah, it's I, I unless think, you were trying to throw me off last no, year. No, no, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm good with what I tell you. But it's um, it really is. It, it's something to where you we all have our ideas. I mean, Jordan and I, we knew that we were going to play together for. We we had a good idea that we were we were definitely going to play at least one match together. Right, and it was something to where I think if we struggled then I was going to go out with Tiger and P. Reed and Jordan were going to get back because it's like, hey, if we're winning, then you can't, you know, we're going to keep winning. And um, it's something to where I remember even at the Presidents' Cup, like Rick and I were playing, we were winning every match. And then, I mean, we had Berger and I had no discussions of ever playing together and no captain ever said anything. And Rick was going to sit afternoon, I think, on like Saturday. And 
captain came up. He's like, hey, you good to go out with Burger? I'm like, hell yeah, I'll go out with Burger. So we just went out and we won. So it's like it's you always have the the up in the air thing of, you know, some things are going to need to get changed around because it's something to where, you know, like the pairings say with Phil, like if he, he had his pairings, but he's was kind of he was taking one for the team really and saying like look I'm not playing well right. like don't play me so then when that happens you have to change something up but there's just there's so much more that goes into it than people think and it's I mean it's not like Jim's sitting in there like all right let's see if we can really change this up and win this it's like no he's sending out the best teams that we he feels like we have and we all feel like we have and you know if if you would have asked me to play with someone I don't want to play with I would have told him no but um I think that's a good thing about a lot of these teams is we're all so good and get along to where we can play with most each other and that's where it seems you know most of the guys that I, I talk to on the team are take are pretty good at taking ownership and like it, it, it was not 2014 I know you weren't on that team but it wasn't dictated who you're going to play with like you guys are it's a it's an interaction mm-hmm. like it's a fee it's a feedback thing who do you want to play with and you know, it's it's a certain point. It's up to up to Furek, the captain. But at the same time, it's like you guys are also identifying the people you want to play Absolutely. with. Absolutely, yeah. So it's a lot of a lot of communication and a lot. I mean, I mean, I've already been asked to, you know, who I potentially want to play with a couple months ago. Like it's 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 a lot more than just we get there and we all sit down like, all right, so who do you want to play yeah. with? You know, it's it's. I mean, I was practicing months and months before with Tiger's ball in case we were to put, to play together, so I would be ready for that. And he was doing the same thing with my ball. He was doing the same thing with P. Reed's ball. So it's like <laughs> it's it's a lot more than than people think. Can you teach us? Uh, we'll save the draw chip for later because I want to <laughs> I want to do uh, I want to still talk a little bit more Ryder Cup. But so what did do you honestly? A lot of people correlated. You know, you were the only one that went over and played the French Open, and then you went four and one. Did it help to have seen that golf course? Do you think it's I mean, anytime you see a golf course, it helps. You know, it, nothing could possibly hurt. But, um, you know, I hate to, to pick on him, but it's like it's like we were saying, Phil wasn't playing well, but it's not like if he went over, he'd be like, oh, now I'm good. It's like, no. like Because he, he did if, go over and play it before the Open. Yeah, he yeah, was exactly. One of a, lot played, of, yeah. a lot of guys, uh, I mean, a fair amount of our guys went and played it beforehand. But the thing is, too, is the French was – it was firm. It was really firm to where it was. I mean, I remember on nine, I was hitting five wood, like five iron, pretty much every day. And in the in the Ryder Cup, I was hitting. I think I was hitting like three wood, and then I was trying to hit three wood into the green. So it's just the wind was totally different. It was firm. It was makes the rough play a lot differently. I would imagine. Yeah. So the rough was. Um, the rough was every bit as long at the French because it was it was I just remember I drove it really really well that week and um, I was glad that I did so I didn't have to play out the rough but obviously it was being a lot more wet and everything like that it just it, that that changes it a lot in terms of being able to get to the greens and such well what did you think of the way that golf course was set up I'll, I'll ask that one first and then kind of transition into a, a, an idea I have about course setup in the Ryder Cup and whatnot but uh, do you think did you like the way that course was set up? Did you think it was a good golf course to play for that event? I mean, I thought it was fine. It's it's not um, – I mean, it's just a golf course. It's not – and it was kind of funny to me because, like, some guys were like, God, like, how I can't believe how narrow they got these fairways and the rough stuff. I'm like, I got news for you. It was just like this at the French Open. Like, right. this is no different. And I just remember reading stuff online, and it's like, you know, this is just such a typical home course thing or home field advantage where the Europeans are setting it up. And I just wanted to be like, this is not any different than this course is. It's a hard golf course. It's, I mean, I think seven or eight under won the French Open, and it's like, it's a hard course. So they didn't do anything different in the setup. But the course is definitely, um, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I liked it. I thought it was a, it's a good test and it, it has the opportunity depending on the conditions and the wind and weather, whatever it is to, you can have some birdies, but it's also, especially in that when it got windy and that alternate shot, you know, you're winning holes with pars and bogey. So it, I guess it just depends on what you like watching. Yeah. I just remember looking down that 17th fairway and just being like, that is for a 485 yard hole. With that the is wind off the left. The yeah. most narrow fairway I feel like I've ever seen. It just looked like it was brought in. And so you don't think fairways no, were brought in? Okay. I, I really, really do not. But my, my point overall, and I, I want to get this out in advance of whistling straights because of what I, it's because it can get perceived as just buttheartedness about, you know, losing the most recent Ryder cup. But I think we're going to start trending towards because uh, 16 was set up really friendly bombers paradise. And I think the euros looked at that and we're like, well, we are going to change that and, you know, put up the, all, all the grew the rough up and just made that set up about as hard as possible. I think we're going to steer right back the opposite way for whistling straights. And I just think that at some point we're going to have to look into if we want to set up for the most exciting event, because the last three Ryder cups have not really been close. And their yeah, home team has true. won all of them. Yeah, that's very true. It's like, I don't know if we want to keep trending in that direction. Because we want drama. I mean, I want the U.S. to win, of course. But, like, we want excitement. We want it to be close mm-hmm. and exciting. And uh, I just think that there should be some kind of neutral party that kind of sets up these golf courses. Yeah, that's... I've, I've, Starting I've never, in 2022. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, you know, I've never really thought of that. But I definitely think that is a, it is a good idea. Because it's not like... It's, um, I mean, it's not like it. it's you're not going to get the bet the better players win you know it's just it's it's golf course you know we could go play jupiter par three here and a, one of the teams is going to win right so it's it's it is it is true but you know it's i guess when it, it is your home field you know why why wouldn't you do it especially when it's something as big as the Ryder cup but it is kind of uh funny how it is trending that way i also don't know if i, I probably haven't played enough to understand it or but i mean i know i've talked to rory about medina and he's just said it was it was laughable the rough was it was not no rough. Yeah. Yeah. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Golf Blueprint. I'm going to ask you a question I already know the answer to. It's, are you getting the most out of your golf practice? And there's just no possible way that that answer is yes. I'm not getting the most out of my practice. I just, it's hard to make time. Golfers fall into this trap because they don't have a plan. They put too much emphasis on what just happened in the most recent round, and they misjudge the areas of the game that need work. Our friends at Golf Blueprint have a great membership program. They have a new classic membership that costs $39 a month. Nico and Kevin do all of the planning that goes into it and building. All you have to do is sign up. You get your plan for what your practice plan should be, and you get to work uh, it has helped me get more out of my practice. I need to do it more religiously. I need to, you know, it's kind of like having a, a, a personal trainer in a gym, but for your golf game, it holds you a little bit accountable. I'm working on, you know, carving out more time to do it. I know I'm going to be working on these cards as we start getting back into tournament season here in Florida, but wanted to share that news with you guys. They have a classic membership again. It's $39 a month. Go to golfblueprint.com. Sign up for it. These guys have been a great help to a lot of people. They got all kinds of data on their website that illustrates how they've helped people with their golf games at all skill levels, not just tournament players, but all skill levels. So golfblueprint.com. Check it out. Let's get back to the pod. Next up, it's Bones again talking about the comments that Phil made after the 2014 Ryder Cup and the fallout from that and how things played out uh, in the coming years and months. Uh, it was, you know, an, an, an absolute indictment of the process. It's to use your words. And um, I mean, this had been building for some time. I think, you know, you could it was you could have a problem with the way, you know, the, the, the captains were selected. And I'm not talking about Tom Watson. I'm just talking about generally speaking over the last 15, 20 years. Um, but again, I think the players also all want to be part of the process. And you, you can't you can't go to a guy 
you can't go to a guy the day before the matches start and say, okay, you're going to go, you're going to now play with this guy and you've got, you know, today to get used to his golf ball or whatever the case may be, you know, you've got to take these things very, very seriously. And, you know, again, you know, to kind of, you know, reiterate how, how well the Europeans were doing it, they go so far as to having control of their tee times over there on the European tour. So the captain of their Ryder Cup teams, was basically putting guys together on Thursday and Friday or, or calling the tour and say, put these two guys together so they could get used to, A, one another, being around each other, seeing how they play, um, spending time together on the golf course because they were thinking some months down the road is putting them out together you know, in, the, in some kind of format at the Ryder Cup. And they, they, there was just, they weren't leaving anything left to chance in terms of uh, you know, how far they would go to win these things and the setup of the golf courses and all this stuff. And, and we weren't doing that, and, and it had to happen. And at some point, collectively, these guys had to get together and, and, and get some kind of uh, movement you know, that turned out to be this task force to get it fixed. And, you know, certainly, you know, Phil took it upon himself to kind of get this ball rolling uh, and, and you can like it or not like it, but the reality is that a tremendous amount of positive, you know, in terms of the U S Ryder cup uh, movement came out of this and, and it had a lot to do with the, with the win in Hazeltine. Next up, Jordan Speed talking about the 2018 Ryder cup. We've got to talk about the Ryder cup. Some, the first question I have is regarding kind of the, some of the drama that happened uh, on the back half of it and afterwards, could you sense that that building up while you're there or during that week that you did, that uh, there was going to be some drama unfolding? No, I, I no, I don't think so. It was, uh, I felt like everybody went into it. It felt a lot like the President's Cup in 17. It, it felt pretty light. It felt as light as any Ryder Cup had felt that I had been a part of. You know, I think people were, were trying to figure out people were trying to figure out the pairings. There was a, you know, some new guys, there were some, you know, I don't think Brooks and DJ were going to go, which, you know, you left two guys playing at the top of the world. Uh, who do you pair them with? Pretty similar styles of game. And then, you know, Tiger obviously being in there and him uh, being in the, the pod with, or fire squad, whatever we call it with, uh, with me and, and Justin and Patrick. Um, it was, how is this going to mix and match? Who's going to play with who? What format? So I think we're. I think there was a little bit of like a, a little bit of a hesitation on pairings, but other than that, I mean, off the course, it was it was fantastic, and and I felt like everyone had trust. We had so many guys in form. Everybody, I mean, really everybody except I, myself was playing well going into it, and uh, I mean, I think by DJ standards, he had finished maybe twentieth one week, so that's that's pretty low for yeah, him. Big slump. But, uh, so no, I guess before you and Patrick hugged it out at Farmers, had you guys spoken at all before that? And is it totally bygones be bygones with everything that happened? There? Yeah, we hadn't. I'd seen him at Sony, I think, for the first time, and I was just like, "Hey, man, how you doing? You know, Happy New Year." And he said the same back, and that was about as far as it went. And then uh, I knew we were going to get paired at some point, and I knew the tour was trying not to pair us, um, just for the. And then, of course, we get paired on like a Saturday or whatever it was. And Can't control that. So I, we had I had ideas on what to do. It was, uh, I think, my I, one of my ideas was to give him a hug, and that's the one Michael voted for. He's like, this is the one you got to do. I can't remember my other ones. It was maybe like a, like I was going to fake the handshake and pull it back and um, <laughs> just try and blow it up even more. And uh, But I think that was... 
it was kind of, yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing's been different since nothing was really different that week. It's like it. And even when we do play together, we're both still trying to beat each other up. So it's like, I remember you saying that last time you were on is when you guys are playing a match against others, you guys are trying to beat each we're other. We're trying to get the credit yeah. for the match. Yeah. And we're trying to play better than the other, even an alternate shot. We're right. like, I'm like, like we'll literally say things to each other. Like, thanks for putting me behind that tree. Like, why don't you hit a fairway? You know, like <laughs> something like that. Or, uh, so it's, it's it's a totally different scenario than what you'd probably expect out of a out of a pot. But it, you know, for me, it was I'd I'd grown up with Justin, and we'd always dreamt of playing a match together. So when when I got asked, it was man, it'd be really cool for at least one of the matches if if I was able to play with Justin, just because we've always wanted to do it. Like, look, the Ryder Cup is the Ryder Cup. It's everybody looks at it as you know, a ma- we, we, we approach it like a major championship, if not more so, uh, even put it on a higher pedestal. But at the same time, it's, I don't want to, you know, I wouldn't want to not play with Justin for 20 years of playing in the Ryder cup and be like, man, I mean, these are, I don't want to call it exhibition, but like, these are like, these should be really fun too. Even with the intensity that we, that we go into them with, like how cool would it be to play with one of your best friends yeah. that you grew up since you were 14, 13 traveling the world with. And all of a sudden we both, you know, are able to, to do what we love to do, get on tour, become, you know, major champions. How awesome would that be for us to be able to team it up for our country in the biggest event that golf offers in the Ryder cup? Like, it's just like a, I was like, man, it'd be whether it happens this year or not. Like I'd love to play with them. And that they came out with, with those pairings and that's what we went with. And me and Justin played great. I mean, it was, right. it was a blast. I mean, we had so much fun. Uh, and then, you know, the, the drama that happened after is just, you know, I think Jim did it. Jim, I think Jim did an awesome job. I think Jim did a great job as a captain. I think he, he was a, he was a player's captain and he has to be the one to sit on the sword. And it's like, it's not him. Like we just didn't play well. It's right. like that simple. It wasn't because there was drama. It was like, look, if you had a, if you, if you, if this were a 72 hole event, there would have been, you know, a couple Americans in the top 12 and the other 12 spots would have been the Europeans. And they just played better that week. The course was set up so well for them. They did a great job of that. They found where, you know, our, our issues were in our games and where their advantages were and they took advantage and, and we've, we did the same thing a couple of years before. Yeah. It's just, you've got to be able to overcome that, compensate for that and hit the right shots and, and make the putts. And, and they just did that more than we did. It's that simple. Like they just outplayed us. Yeah. I think the drama definitely unfolded because of the poor play. It wasn't necessarily that the, the other way around. Sure. Yeah. I mean, on Sunday, I mean, I, I lost my singles match and I, played really poorly. I played way worse than I did with Justin. And there's no question that having a partner where, where in the same way, when I played with Patrick, I mean, by Sunday, it's like a letdown playing a singles match. Cause you just get this, you're so fired up to play with a partner. We never get to do it. You're feeding off each other. You're high five. Like Patrick, like broke my hand in 2016 when he held out that wedge I remember that. on like number six. I mean, I, I went, I mean, he like, I mean, he was, I mean, it was just, it's so much fun playing with a partner that I have a hard time I've had a hard time on the singles days of stepping up with the, with the same kind of intensity. It's something I need to work on for our teams going forward. Um, should I be so fortunate to, to, to make as many as I can? It's, 
it's uh you know i feel i feel like i let the team down there and in it being going out pretty early and and having a chance to put red on the board there in 2014 um that really could have made an impact so that that hurt at the end of that but personally but I knew I wasn't playing well going in. Um, I, I wasn't in form. I was working my hardest to be as good as I could be and um, and, f- and really just had an awesome time that week no matter what. Uh, there's nowhere to hide on that golf course if you're not if you're not striking it very well. <laughs> that was a cre- that was pretty much the wildest setup I'd seen. That 17th hole, that fairway looked like it had been moved in. And I'm sure that it, people will say that it wasn't moved in, but that was the smallest fairway for a 485-yard hole I've ever seen, yeah, I think. Yeah, with the rough growing India. Next up, Brad Faxon talking about his Ryder Cup experience in 1995. You made the Ryder Cup team through that through that final round at Riviera. What was your first Ryder Cup experience like? Well, it, you get I get questions. What was the most nervous you've ever been in your life? Yeah, and and people will always say it must have been, you know, your first time your tee shot at the Masters, or on the first tee at the Ryder Cup or, you know, a putt to win your first tournament or a major championship, which I never did. But I can tell you at the Ryder Cup in 95, we, we played a practice round on Monday when the gates were closed, so there were no people, no spectators. And then Tuesday, we went out, and I got a pairing with Lauren Roberts, Peter Jacobson, and Corey Pavin. And Peter and I were a potential four-ball uh, team. Uh, Lanny, Lanny wanted us to be the first ones out. And that morning, that particular morning in Oak in Rochester was later September. So it was cool. It wasn't cold, but I would say it was fifties and Peter and I were going to go out there and play. And we had to walk from the practice tee to the uh, to the first tee, which was a hundred yards, maybe longer. Uh, there was a gauntlet there and there were people waving flags, screaming USA. And, you know, we had gone from a dead silent course the day before to all of a sudden thousands and mm-hmm. thousands of people. Practice rounds are rowdy. At the oh, Ryder my Cup. <laughs> gosh. It was incredible. And and none of us had seen this before. I don't think we were prepared for that. And we're walking up there. We're all wearing our red, white, and blue. And the flags are going. And people are high-fiving. And we're walking up there. It was fun. And we walk up onto the tee, you know, just kind of the backside of the first tee there. And standing on the first tee, Byron Nelson George Herbert Walker Bush waving American flags. And it's like a I, normal tournament, right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, that's Byron <laughs> Nelson. And and he said, come on, Brad. And I'm like, he knows my name. <laughs> Byron Nelson knows who I'm I am. I'm like, oh my God. So, and then it was like uncanny. Uh, it was the voice of God said, and on the tee, first to play from the United States of America, which I had never had before. Right. Maybe I had it at a Walker Cup. Brad Faxon. Now, I didn't know I was going to be the first one to hit. And I I was like, oh, my God, I don't know if I can do it. And this was 1992, so I had, I was 95. So I was one of the last guys to switch from wood to metal. Okay. And the metal wood, I was probably using either a TaylorMade or a Founders Club. I don't know if you're old enough to remember <laughs> no. Founders Club. But I took that thing out there, and it looked smaller than the golf ball when I was over it. And... The first hole at Oak Hill is a, a long dogleg left par four with out of bounds to the right. It was blowing left to right. It was cold. I was nervous. And what makes it worse is we had this little uh, phrase called mite, M-I-T-E. And that meant man in the envelope. And what that meant was we all knew that if on Sunday in the singles match, one player was hurt on the other team, Lanny was going to have to put a man in the envelope, okay. a name in the envelope. Right. So okay. if somebody hit a bad shot that week, we all said might. 
So you were going to be the guy that didn't play. Right. The so might, yeah. Yeah, and, and I thought any time Lanny was around and I hit a bad shot, I was thinking might. You know, it was just, it was the worst thing. Because that had happened to, at the War by the Shore. Uh, Steve Pate got in an accident, Injured, yeah. right? In the, yeah. in the limo. And I was, it's good of you, you weren't even born then. So, yeah, I was, uh, I was born in 86. Okay. Come on. Okay, so um, we go out, I go, I go to hit it. And I got it airborne, I hit a, a draw and it ended up just in the left rough. And for me, it was the best shot of my life, right? <laughs> uh, without a doubt. And, and everybody hits and we go out there laughing. And I think either Lauren or Corey was the only guy to hit the fairway. And then we get out there and magically all four balls were within five, 10 yards of each other because Lanny had thrown them all out in the middle of the fairway. He was out in the in the landing area. And he, he comes over like Lanny Ken with that swagger. And he says... Oh, you guys won't hit it there in the tournament and I'm or in the competition. I'm like, oh, I might. I, I don't hit a lot of fairways. If I hit it good, I will. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. So now I had like 210, 220, and it was wet. It's a little downhill lie. There was a creek 10 or 15 yards short of that green. And I had to take out a two iron. And this is back when oh, two yeah. irons That's didn't, a different shot. They didn't have head covers, right? right. They, they weren't fat. Uh, and I'm like, oh, and Lanny's watching. And like, I could be kicked off the team right now if this doesn't get over the <laughs> creek. And so that first hole was the most uncomfortable I've ever been on a golf course. I was shot. in a practice. I was way more comfortable playing, mm-hmm. way more comfortable. So, I mean, it's ironic that it's a practice round. It's not um, unexpected that it was the Ryder Cup, though, right? And there, that's a cool letter that I got from Byron Nelson. He wrote me a letter one time and. Uh, after my second place finish at the tour championship, he saw an interview. So to have um, a framed letter, handwritten penned letter on his stationery, and that the great line there at the very end, he says, you're a fine man. Now, who says that? Right. No, nobody phrases anything like you that. You can hear the accent, though, when, you're when, a you, fine man. when you say that. Uh, Next up, Colin Montgomery talking about his experience both as a player and a captain in the Ryder Cup. From a timeline of events, what was I guess what was the low point? I think the easy answer is probably ninety nine at Brookline. Is that is that the case? Uh, of the heckling, yeah. I, I suppose you know. I mean, the one thing that we didn't, the one thing that we made a mistake on, and uh, and as a team, and and as administrators of the game within the European team, America had not lost the Ryder Cup three times in a row. Mm-hmm. We'd won it uh, in ninety five. We'd won it in ninety seven. And we were 10-6 up going into 99. And we didn't give enough uh, respect to the Americans by them not wanting to lose three times in a row. It wasn't just my game. There was other, there were other incidents on the course during Brookline. It was a, one of these days. But no, nothing can be taken away from the fact that America played extremely well. You know, they won the first six games, which is unheard of. And suddenly from 10-6, we were, we were, we were 12-10 down and right. things got, you know, really smelly, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh. But at the same time, uh, you know, I have to go back to the gentleman that I was playing. And I sure. mean gentleman in Payne Stewart. And, um, you know, to think two months later he's not with us was, was shocking to everybody. And, and, uh, and it was a game that I will always remember. Uh, not the result. The game of golf didn't matter a damn. Uh, when you think about, you know, you're playing partners not with us two months later. And uh, current U.S. Open champion, uh, you know, was amazing. So the result of the game didn't matter at that 
when you look back on it now, you know. Well, can you tell the story of what why that meant so much to you, what he did to that Sunday? That you well, know? yeah, yeah, I will. You know, the first thing that uh, Payne said to the press, and I was watching, I was there in '99, obviously at uh, Pinehurst when he won the U.S. Open and won it so well. Remember the putt that went in with a cutoff? You know, it was raining and the cutoff yeah. sleeves and all the stuff that went on, and and the patriot that he was in saying that, my God, yes, I'm in the Ryder Cup team now. Now, he just won the US Open. Now, you thought that was a big deal. Right. But he said, no, I'm, I'm back in the Ryder Cup team because he didn't play, I don't think, in 95 or 97. So he's back in it. And it meant that, it meant that much to him even before he'd said anything. So, so coming back to, to uh, Brookline and playing the singles match, which is what people tend to remember the Ryder Cup with is your singles games, really, mostly than, than your foursomes or your, or your four ball. That works out well for you. We'll get well, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that, that's what tend to, you know, you tend to go. And of course, so having said that it meant so much to him, and then to the detriment of his own game to actually go into the crowd and eject a few people on my behalf, that meant the world to me on my behalf because uh, he he was he was feeling it too you know it was getting a little bit crazy really mm-hmm. and uh, we were the last game on the course so you know that it could have yet happened to finish with Elazable and uh, and uh, uh, Justin Leonard didn't it the game before but uh, we were behind them watching it all unfold and so that was t- to the detriment of his own game. In the fact that winning the U.S. Open, getting back in the Ryder Cup team, that to me was a that to me was a real gentleman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What do you owe your Ryder Cup success to? Because we were looking at your Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. Your playoff record on the European Tour was zero and seven. It was, yeah. And yeah, your yeah. singles record in the Ryder Cup is six zero and two. How do you how do you possibly explain the two? Because I guess like I feel like rather unfairly, people you know because of the fact you never won a major on, mm-hmm, on the main mm-hmm. tour that you were mm-hmm. somehow being labeled as not being able to play under pressure. Right, pressure doesn't get any bigger than the Ryder Cup, and maybe nope. no one ever has been better than you. So how do you how do you delineate the two? Usually, it's you know you see like somebody with like Tiger Woods has been the complete opposite effect. In a way, I you know it, it goes back to it goes back to this crazy game of golf, and anybody you know your listeners here would understand how crazy the game is. Uh, yes, I can play under pressure. Everybody that gets to gets to a certain position in the game can. It's just a matter of if your opponent's not having such such a good time, or or someone does something fantastic. I mean, I was going to get beaten in the Ryder Cup if someone came out and shot nine under. I mean, best of luck to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just so happened that they didn't. Uh, uh, you know, you go off to a flyer and and you've had it. Francesco Molinari won the first two holes against Tiger. When I was captain in in, in 2010, we thought, okay, that's good. And then Tiger birdies nine out of the next 11, you know, seven and six. You think, what the hell what happened there? You know, it just, you just, you get fortunate, you get unfortunate, whatever. And, and I happened to play some good golf within that time. I hold some good putts. I, I putted well. Uh, and I wasn't, I wasn't afraid because the Ryder Cup, I had other people on my back. You know, I was fortunate in the time that we played the Ryder Cup. We had we had five guys in Europe that were really, apart from Freddie Couples and I think Nick Price, Greg Norman, you know, that was it really. That was the top ten in the world and mm-hmm. five of which were European with, you know, Lyle, Langer, Seve, Faldo and of course Woosnam. And, and uh, so I, I started off playing with them. So if I, I felt that if I didn't win, well... 
they were going to they were going to do something to help me out here. So I had more freedom mm-hmm. in that Ryder Cup than I would have done normally. So playing the Ryder Cups, I had more freedom, especially early doors. And then the last said three, three or four Ryder Cups, I I got to a stage where people were sort of beginning to rely on me. And I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that feeling and and uh, and went out and performed okay, you know. So, yeah, I was I was lucky. Uh Especially once, you lucky, know. Lucky is six. Well, oh, and two isn't lucky. Well, well, <laughs> once there was there was a time, 2006, it happened to be my last uh, Ryder Cup. I mean, you don't know it at the time, but, but yes, it was my last playing in the Ryder Cup at the K Club. And we were ahead, quite well ahead, I think, 10, <laughs> 10 and a half, five and a half or something, going into the singles. And Ian Woosnam came to me, the captain. I'll never forget it. And he said to me, you know, uh, you've been going first for a while here, Monty. Uh, uh, do you mind going first again? Because you know what might happen. You know what they're going to do. Now down, you've got to put your strength at the top. And Tiger was the strength. So he says, do you mind if you go first? Because odds on, you're going to have to play Tiger Woods in the singles, you see. And I go, look, look, Ian, you're the captain. I'll go anywhere. I'm delighted to go one to 12, whatever the case may be. Yeah, sure. You know, fine. So, something, oh God, what have I said, you know? God, you know? <laughs> you signed up for Tiger Woods. <laughs> Absolutely, I've signed up for the worst game of my life, you know? Anyway, so I'm talking about fortune in, in some ways to you here. So the draw comes out and it comes over the radio. We're all sitting in the, sitting in the locker room, the European locker room, and it's a bit crackly, the phone, uh, the sort of walkie-talkie type thing. And so the draw comes out and it goes, Monty, you see, because it was uh, John Paramore, the European referee, and he's always known me as Monty. So Monty first against Tom. Tom. And I'm thinking, Tom, hang on a minute. (laughs) Who's Tom? Tom, who's Tom? (laughs) Tom Lehman's the captain. Why have they put me against the non-playing captain? You know, I didn't... I'm supposed to be playing Tiger, you know. (laughs) And I didn't hear Tiger. And it was David David Toms, Toms, you see. David Toms. And they'd switched it. Tiger actually played, I think, fourth. He had to be in the top sort of half. Yeah. I think he played fourth and, and played Robert Carlson in the end. So you say fortunate, you say not. I mean, David Toms, my God, you know, he could beat anybody on any day, anywhere. Some some guy that you've got to go and play, you know, your best golf to try and beat. So, it, you know, I'm not saying it was easy, but at the sure. same time, possibly even even David would would understand it was easier than playing Tiger Woods. Of course. You know? So there you go. Well, this is kind of a random nugget I found when I was you know preparing for this, was Paul Casey did an interview talking about the 06 event, and he said, nobody really noticed this, but while all the players were on the balcony spraying champagne, having a good time, Monty was mm-hmm. nowhere to be seen. Mm-hmm. He just wants a quiet moment, and I can understand that. Was yes, that the case true. when you guys would win the Ryder Cup? You would you would not you would kind of need a quiet moment. Why is that? And can you explain that? Very much, very much. Uh, going off first in the Ryder Cup is not a position for everybody. It's not it's not something that everybody would would put their hand up for. It was a big deal, and I I had a record in that Ryder Cup that I was very proud of, and 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 I hadn't lost in seven, and this was beginning to n- not lose in eight. I was. I was two up with two to go against David, and uh, David birdied 17 to to be you know just one down playing the last. I managed to birdie the last, and uh, to half it with David, he finished birdie birdie. I managed to, to half him at the last to win by w- one hole, and it took a lot out of me, took a hell of a lot out of me. And I went into the players' dining area, the, uh, the European players' dining area, which of course was empty. 
because I was off first. So, so there was nobody in there. Mm-hmm. I think the chef was even out watching the golf, the Irish <laughs> chef, I don't blame him. <laughs> and so I just needed a moment. I needed to sit down in a moment because the crowd were going nuts. It was Darren Clark's Ryder Cup. It was everything was going nuts. Although I went out to the 16th hole where it was all going off the... the, the, the I stayed at the back. I didn't want to. I didn't want to to be part of of, of a huge. Everyone was going nuts, and I I just stood back. But I I did take about half an hour in that team room on my own, because sometimes you you know it gets it gets to you sometimes sure. when you're out in that position, and that's all that was. Did you know, having been a captain as well? How mm-hmm. different? Obviously, you're not playing the golf, but did mm-hmm. you? Did you, I guess, you know, I've heard some captains say like, wow, I would, have, I would have been a very different player for my captains having gone through the captaincy. What was that yes. experience like? Did you kind of have that same reaction? Yes, it was, uh, you know, having, having, had a, having had a reasonable career playing, you don't want to really spill it by losing as a captain. Now, I hated it, to be honest. Really? Absolutely hated it. Uh, not, that, that's harsh. Hated it when the players left the first tee. Because you were out of control. Correct. I was enjoying it to that stage. And then suddenly, my God, I've let my first group off. Now, they've got to come back in four and a half hours or however long it was taking uh, with half a point or a point or else I've made a terrible mistake here. <laughs> and it's and it's too much really emphasis on the captain, to sure. be honest with you. I mean, the players have got it. I mean, I can't. I'm, I'm not coaching these guys. If these guys miss a three-foot putt, that's their fault. It's not really mine. You can't really blame me for it. You know? <laughs> but but the captains tend to have to take that on the chin, you know, and, it, and it's tough. And uh, any captain or any coach or any manager of any team, whether it be baseball or football or basketball, whatever it might be, you know, tends to get that and it was just the lack of control feature that I didn't like I hated that lack of control where I sent off my team and I didn't have any control nothing I could do nothing about it at least as a player well I had some control even if the guy was eight under playing against me well I had control to be nine under I had had that you know you know thought as a captain, my God, I had nothing. I just drove around a buggy, looking at my phone, looking at the scoreboard, thinking, oh, Christ, what's happening now, you know? So it was the lack of control that I didn't, that I didn't yeah. like, and I'm sure that every captain would say the same. So all the success you had as a player winning as a captain, is mm-hmm. that, was that kind of your, I can't, I'm at the peak of the Ryder Cup. I'm, that's it. I can't do it. That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's it now. Uh, forget the Ryder Cup now. Yeah. <laughs> I've done, been there, done that, and, you know, t- to use a term, and, and uh, yeah, that was it for okay. me. Uh, uh, I spoke to Sam Torrance. I spoke to Ian Woosnam. I spoke to Bernhard Langer about, you know, doing it again sort of thing. And they said, look, look, Monty, run a mile. Run a mile from this because... Uh, uh, once you've done it once, you've been fortunate, won by half a point. You know, don't don't toss that coin up again. Sure. You know, don't don't do that again. And 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 I yeah, I honour what they were saying. I can understand it fully what they were saying. If I'd lost, or if the team had lost, then you could come back a bit like Davis Love did in 2012 to come back in 16 and win it again. Great. You know, fine. Best of luck to him. But as a winner, I think, I think you've got to get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Next up, Hal Sutton talking about his captaincy. The, the vibe I get from a lot of past captains is it's very mixed on what the, uh, their overall experience as a captain, whether they recommend it, whether it was worth it. What, what can you speak of to that in, in your mind? I know you kind of – you had a – I guess describe your relationship with the game of golf shortly in the years after your captaincy as well. I quit. 
completely, 46 years old. I was fully eligible all the way till I went to the Champions Tour, and I completely quit the game after that point. I did not play 20 rounds of golf in five years after that. And why is that? Because I was so disappointed in the effort that I put into it and how I was the scapegoat for everybody. I was the fault. And I never hit a shot. And, you know, I did everything. I brought Jackie Burke in there, who was certainly not current in the game. And I brought him in because I thought he was the most knowledgeable person in the game left. And I wanted the rest of the players to know him. I brought Steve Jones into it as my assistant captain, who was not current either because he'd had elbow problems. But he won the U.S. Open at Oakland Hills. You know, I'd done a lot of things leading up to that that I thought were recognizing people in the game and of the game and for the game. I was hurt. I was bitter after that. My dad begged me not to do it. He said, Hal, you're still a good player. You've got no business doing that. And I didn't listen to him. And I said, how many people would ever turn their back if asked to be a captain of the Ryder Cup team? That's what I played for my whole life. But I was bitter. So I would fit into the category of if they asked me again, if I had the knowledge I have now, I probably wouldn't do it. Next up, a shorter one from Webb Simpson talking about 2012. That win is going to help you get on the Ryder Cup team 2012. You guys come out at Medina. You and Bubba are paired up. And those I was there those first couple of days, man. That was just a clinic. I mean, it was you guys yeah. were killing it. It was so fun to watch. Do you what do you, when when I mentioned the 2012 Ryder Cup? Do you look back with fond memories of your first Ryder Cup and playing well, or do you remember what happens on Sunday? Gosh, I remember both. I mean, it's a very of all the team events I've played, it's probably the most vivid team event. And it's you know it is was that eight years ago. Um, Davis was an amazing captain all week. We had Michael Jordan come in give us a a pre Ryder Cup uh, pump up speech, which was amazing. So. We had a 10-6 lead. We're feeling great. We're playing great. Our whole team is incredibly confident um, when we go to bed Saturday night. And Davis, he did an amazing job even Saturday night. You know, it was short and sweet, told us to keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, he, he sent out, I think, he kind of front-loaded it and back-loaded it. And, you know, he's – I've heard him say before, like, he wishes he'd have done stuff differently. But I think he did as, as best he knew he could do in that moment. And so it was humiliating, I think, to lose a lead like that in my first Ryder Cup. And honestly, we're just as sad after that we didn't win for Davis as anything because he's a guy on tour that I think you could say this only about a few guys, that everyone loves Davis. And everyone's got huge respect for him, his career, you name it. And so that was hard. But being my first Ryder Cup, I experienced things that I've never experienced in the game of golf, like the most nervous you'll ever be as a golfer, I'm convinced, is in a Ryder Cup. But the most fun you'll ever have as a golfer, I think, is winning a point in the Ryder Cup. I mean, it is so fun. Uh, you're winning it for your country, your team. And what's cool, Chris, is like PJ Tour players, like everybody's got, I don't want to say ego, but everybody's got confidence. Like everybody walks around these tournaments, they believe in themselves, and that's probably why they made it to the PJ Tour, and that's great. But these team events, all that goes away and like, you know, everybody talks about you play for your team, play for your country, play for each other. But it, it's kind of cool to experience guys in a team environment because all that, all the self-accomplishments goes away for that few days of golf, which is really fun to experience. Hmm. That's interesting. 
yeah, yeah. it's like yeah you 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 can dominate each other you know week in week out but now you owe it to the rest of the team to play what play good golf this week and exactly kind of just humbles you at least a little bit it does yeah, yeah you forget about yourself Next up, Furek again, this time reflecting back on the 2018 Ryder Cup. When I mention the 2018 Ryder Cup, is it immediately, is it a happy memory? Uh, catch 22. I mean, I, I loved I loved the process. I loved all the work and the hundreds of hours that my wife and I put into it. And it comes to fruition. And I loved the 12 guys I had and the way it looked. And that will always be my team. Uh, they Most of them still call me Cap. When I look at it, the result, I mean, the result stings. I mean, oh, forever, there's losses uh, that you said will haunt you forever. I mean, that's the one that I'll never – I won't get over that. But, mm. you know, I can tee it up in a tournament and go play. But I'd be lying if I said it's my favorite event. It's it's probably the, the mark on my career that bothers me the most is I've been involved with so many Ryder Cups, right? I've been, I think, involved with 11. I played in – I might have been involved with more, maybe 12. We've won. Uh, I played on nine teams, so I guess I'm involved with my 12th now as an assistant for And you were assistant in 16 as For well. Davis. Yeah, that's right. So uh, so I'm involved now in my 12th. But, you know, 11 events, and we're 3-8. and eight. And so I look at it that way where, um, you know, 16 was so much fun for me just to watch those guys play so well and, and pretty much dominate from start to finish. And, and – uh, and bring home the cup, and I was just so proud of him and so happy for Davis because, you know, quite honestly, we shit the bed at Medina, and and uh, it's something that shouldn't happen. You know, I felt bad for Davis as a player, I, you know, looking back, and, and and a dear friend, and so to see him do uh, a great job, and then the guys go out and respond and play so well, I was just proud of the team and and happy for Davis as a captain. You know, to have that scenario kind of flipped, and and uh, we got. You know, we got off to a good start, but then got behind the eight ball in that second and third session. And I look at it, I'm sure there's guys out there that said, uh, you know, we wish we would have played better. I wish I would have made some, you know, I guess the, the funniest comment, and, and I, funny is a bad word, but the comment that surprises me, it shocks me the most, is I've had a handful of people come up and say, you know, if you got to do it all over again, would you do something different? And I almost laugh. I'm like, well, what arrogant asshole would – have the event go the wrong way and then say, nope, I'd do everything the same way. <laughs> like, how? I mean, of course I'd do things differently, right? And hindsight's twenty twenty, and of sure. course I'd go back and change. At the time, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my vice captains, I'm looking at uh, a stats team, I'm looking at a lot of different things and having, I'm the CEO, I'm the one that's got to pull the trigger and make the decisions, and, and I thought we were doing the right thing, you know, and would I change? Absolutely. Well, I think we all would, if, if, that, if that made sense. Top to bottom, and that's part of it. So does it bother me? It always will. Yeah. But uh, the whole process itself, uh, it's something that I, I, I always wanted to do. Uh, you know, after I played in like maybe two or three of those Ryder Cups, and you're like, oh, man, would it It would just be cool if I got the opportunity to lead and, and uh, be a captain of this team. And then after you play on, you know, six, seven teams, I'm thinking, you know, it's probably, it's probably will we'll come to fruition. It could be an opportunity someday. And you just kind of wait your turn. And I was kind of thankful that I – I mean, everyone wants a home game, but we're going to go over there and we're going to win, and we're going to, on foreign soil, and we're going. To, I firmly believe we're going to turn this around. Uh, and in order to do that, we have to win on foreign soil. I really wanted to be uh, part of the team. I wanted to be the captain of the team that did that. It didn't come to fruition, but it, it will. And uh, hopefully, I'll be traveling over there, and maybe I'll be having a cocktail with Curtis and Ben, and and uh, I'll have a big smile on my face when it happens. Hmm. 
Well, I, golf fans, I, I would definitely say armchair quarterback the most with the Ryder Cup, more so than any other, maybe any other events combined. You have combined. never seen me watch a football game, particularly the Steelers. <laughs> well, I'm saying of all golf events, like that, that, <laughs> okay. that is the one that they armchair the most. And well, yeah, because there's strategy involved, there's teams involved, there's a way you put your order out, there's there's a lot involved in it, so it's easy to armchair. Well, that's what I, I just was wondering if you it's a weird way of asking this but is it any easier losing as bad as you did because like the team just flat out did not play good enough golf I don't know what you can do about Tiger going 0-4 coming off the tour championship Bryson went 0-3 DJ a guy you're leaning on a ton went 1-4 sure you like in you know you in theory you could have paired them differently and maybe they would have played better blah 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 but I don't know how you I'm asking this in the way like, are you beat? Do you beat yourself up over Maybe. anything here? Because I don't see anything glaring that if you wanted to nitpick, it would be like, all right, Phil probably wasn't a great fit for that golf course, but Phil probably wanted to be on that team, and that was probably a pretty easy decision, I would think, to put him on the team. But that's the only one that, with hindsight, that yeah. I would say a lot of that was he. He actually was playing pretty decent on yeah. the way in there. Uh, did not play well right after we picked him. Uh, didn't play very well leading in, but wanted some experience on the team. Going, you know, uh, going to Europe and. You know, one of the coolest moments for me at that event was walking to the first tee on Friday morning for the first match, and they built that giant amphitheater, and you, we as players and captains would come in from the top and yeah. walk down the steps, and I got relentlessly booed down the steps, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> That, uh, no, the British fan, the, the European fans said they I never boo the Americans. I loved it. It was <laughs> awesome. And it's funny how many players and captains from the European side said, oh, you know, like, we're so sorry that happened. And I said, for what reason? Oh, like, that's part of it. That's what sports, it, it wasn't like a, I think they meant it in a friendly way. Sure. I mean, like, it, I, don't, I hate to say that, but like, you know, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't like going to New York and getting called a bum. It was, you know, like, we're rooting against you all week. Here it comes. And I was like, we're ready. That's you know? part of the so Ryder Cup. It was fun. I waved. I smiled. Thumbs up. I thought, that was pretty cool. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that part of it. But I understand the armchair quarterbacking. You know, I, I watch uh, – I'm a giant sports fan. I watch a Steeler game. It's, you know, third and one, and all of a sudden we're going five wide. And, you know, and, and you're looking at it and going, what in the hell are we – you know, just – Give it to the big guy and let's turn it out for a yard and a half. And if you can't get it, you can't get it. But I mean, like, you know, what are we doing with five wide? And then also no one's open or he makes a quick pass. And it's tipped or whatever. And you're, you're done. And you're like, all right, what? Yeah, I make it. You know, what don't I know? Hey, the fullback's hurt. He's over there dinged up with a knee. And, you know, there's things that, that I don't know as well. And I'm not saying the fans out there don't. But it's, you know, you, you do the best you can. You make the decisions you make. Uh, I have to live with them. Right. And and folks are going to criticize them. That's part of my job. I mean, as, as a Ryder Cup captain, one thing you always have to know, you deserve very little of the credit when you win. You're going to get none and you really don't deserve much of it. And you're going to take most of the blame on a loss. And I'm totally fine with that. That's that's part. I I do a lot of work and get ready and and uh, put those guys out there and give them every opportunity to succeed. And, you know, would I change things? Sure. But, uh, you know, when we look back at it, I have good memories because I love I love those guys. I remember you saying too the trip the trip was great. The outside of uh, then you guys spent some time in France outside of the. Uh... We really didn't have you just okay. don't have that much of an opportunity, especially coming off the, the the tour championship. Yeah. So you arrive Monday, you want to get these guys out there to practice a little Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday's a half day with opening ceremonies, and then you're right into it. I what I really wanted was uh, I had played that golf course a bunch. 
Uh, I knew how it would be set up. It was going to be set up just like it was at the French Open. I knew how difficult it was. I knew it was a place you had to get the ball in play. Uh, I, I tried, you know, I, I tried to uh, give the guys as much information as I could about the course before we got there. It's just so hard to do that, right? You need that experience of playing it and getting around it. And these guys are world class players. You know, you give them two practice rounds, they're good. They're able to to get it around. But you give them fifty rounds around it, like some of those guys have had, and and they know it even a little bit better. And you know that that's part of it. I think the European side has done a very good job uh, with their venues, and so that was a home field advantage. What I mean by that is they have European tour events on the venue they've had a Ryder Cup. We don't do that in the U.S. We pick kind of major championship venues where most of their teams seen the golf course almost as much as we have, mm-hmm. and that's a mistake I think we've made over the years. Now, the next away Ryder Cup is in Italy, mm-hmm. and I don't think they've yet. It's it's fallen behind. I think politics, uh, for reasons the golf course isn't ready. They're supposed to play an Italian Open there. They may get one before we play the Ryder Cup. It'll be a good opportunity for us. It mm. won't be as much of a home field advantage. It'll be a place where uh, maybe a little bit. Now, will they still set the golf course up to favor their style of play and the guys on their team? Absolutely. Yeah. And for those folks that say that's not fair, I don't know, man. I kind of like it. I kind of like the fact that, I mean, you can't change anything once Monday morning rolls around. But if, if we've got a long, you know, wild team and we set the golf course up, you know, a little bit more open and, you know, we like firm, fast greens in the U.S. and they like slow greens in Europe, or at least they're more they're more used to playing on greens that roll 10, 10 and a half um, than, than we are. Um, you set it up to where your guys maybe have a, a slight bit of advantage. That's, that's, that's sports. What Can you shine any light on the Patrick Reed situation and how that really unfolded, where he seemed to think that he and Jordan were going to play together? Was he ever told that? Why didn't they play together? How did that all you know, unfold, yeah, and were you disappointed in that? How that? No, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. I said it last year and kind of after the Ryder Cup. Patrick was fully aware that he was playing with Tiger. I think the options were there for, for Jordan. Uh, JT was kind of in that same group of players, but JT was going to wheel more around Tiger or more around Jordan. Patrick was going to play with either Jordan or Tiger. Tiger's a tough guy to play with, to be honest with you. He's a tough guy to partner with. JT's done a very good job of it. But you go back in the history, and the guys that have played with him haven't played very well with him, to be honest with you. And Patrick and Tiger had a very good relationship in past Ryder Cups. That was kind of his vice captain, a guy that he enjoyed having. Ryder Cups, President's Cups, he's a guy that he enjoyed having kind of his hero be his captain and a guy that got him pumped up to play. And he knew going in that he was starting with Tiger and playing. You know, he knew things could change. I'm imagining that a lot of his, you know, being just upset, just just being upset about the way we all played, the way things went down, the fact that we lost is is a lot of it, you know, a lot of frustration. And, and uh, But knowing going in, I think that, absolutely 100 percent. he knew how that pairing was coming have you guys had any communication since all that went down and I, no apologies or we haven't talked no. about the Ryder cup at all when i see him i say hello uh say hi to kessler see how he's doing but uh no say hello uh we're polite uh you know we're friendly with each other hmm. it's a sidetrack here for a second just because you mentioned tiger's a hard guy to play with you've played with him in team events why is he a hard guy to play with it's hard to step in his shoes i mean you know it's like living in michael jordan's shoes for a day it's it's uh I think it's you know, when I had Tiger as a partner, I loved having the best player in the world as my partner. I mean, there was stuff that the shots he hit, things that he did as my partner. 
that I just got like a sly grin on my face looking at the other two guys going, there isn't a chance in hell you can do that. Like, I know you can't do it. You know you can't do it. I can't do it either. Because I can't either. <laughs> and, you know, and, that, and that's my partner, by the way. Um, but you also step into that microscope. Like everything he does from the moment he steps on the property to the moment he steps off is scrutinized. I mean, if you want to go on social media and follow his every step, you can do it. His every shot, his... And everything he does is scrutinized. And so just just to be put in it, none of us really go through that. None of us are the Beatles, you know, uh, and have that wow factor. So I just think there's, a, there's an added attention, an added pressure. And I think uh, maybe not as much from the outside. I think guys, you, you hear it time and time again where guys say, I know people are putting pressure on me to play well, but no one can put more pressure on me than, than myself. And I think they just they just try so damn hard to uh, because of that situation. And I always kind of thought it would be cool to play with Tiger and get paired with him. And we played on like eight teams together before Nicholas put us together. And Jack put us together. I was hurt. I was injured. And I was kind of asking, I said, you, know, you might want to sit me. I have a rib injury. I'm not playing very well. And, and he said, I need you. You're going out with Tiger. And I went, oh, great. <laughs> like, I got the whole world watching. I'm hitting it terrible. I'm in pain. And okay, here we go. Um, and so our first match together, I barely helped Tiger for an entire day. The worst he would have been through 16 is one up on his own ball against the team we played <laughs> in the President's Cup. He made me put out on a par five on the back because I had like a four footer and he had like a tap in and he marked it to let me make the four. I was so nervous <laughs> over the four footer that I'd miss because he already had a tap in. And then uh, we get to 16, and uh, I birdied the 16th hole to win the match 3-2. and two. And it was, like, really the only uh, – I might have helped him another hole. It depends. And uh, we win the match, and, of course, I was teasing the guys. And, and like, at the time, Tiger's four-ball record was, like, 0-8, which is pretty much impossible. And I walked in the team room trying to be a little bit of a smartass and just said, man, I don't really get what's so hard about playing with him in four-ball. I mean – you know, I could have ridden in a cart today and we were one up through 16. What is wrong with you people? I mean, like, how can you not win with this guy? And they're throwing shit at me and, you know, <laughs> giving me a hard time. But I think just stepping in his shoes for a day, it, it's, I don't want to give you the woe is me. I mean, it's got to be hard to be yourself. Yeah. But you, you know, like you can't ask or, or get all that notoriety and expect there not to be some sort of a, I don't know what the right just word is. It's the reality is, of the situation. It's the reality of the situation is there's just going to be a lot of attention. And, and most folks just aren't used to getting that. Now, are there, you know, Phil maybe a little bit, you know, maybe Rory takes a little bit of that. or But Tiger's still Tiger. I mean, he's still A1. Uh, when he steps on the property, everyone else takes a one notch down and takes a back seat. Next up, a throwback to the days before we even had microphones or knew how to record an interview. This is episode 56 with Rory in 2016. Honestly, the interview that changed most of our lives. But just chatting with the Ryder Cup. And again, please forgive the audio quality and my terrible interviewing style from 2016. But Rory McElroy, episode 56. Help me understand this because, and first of all, I, I love this about the Ryder Cup, but I just, it, it's an event you guys care about so much. You talk about so much. You can see the emotion in, in your play and in your reactions. And then afterwards, you have the ability to laugh about it, joke about it. You're, you know, kind of joking with the U.S. team about their celebration. You're leading a USA chant with the crowd on 18. 
Like, if, if Patrick Reed beats you on the last hole at the Masters, you're not laughing it up with him afterwards. But why can the, in the Ryder Cup can you make that transition so quickly and to say, um, you know, we had a great event that we care a lot about winning, but at the end of the day, we're just out there having fun. How is that? How does that, the, the, this event get so much out of you competitively, yet afterwards you can laugh and smile about it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think I think the the answer for the you know about the competitiveness bit is is easy because you know you're there, you're you're you know you're playing for something bigger than yourself. You know, I think that's the big thing. You know, you're playing for your teammates, you're playing for you know your continent, your country. Uh, you know, the captain, the vice captains. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that you don't want to let down. Um, so I think that's where the competitiveness comes from. Um, especially, you know, for me anyway, you know, and I struggled with that a little bit with my first two Ryder Cups. I, I felt the pressure of having to perform for the team, uh, and that made my play a little bit tentative, and, and I sort of went into my shell a little bit, and I didn't, you know, I didn't particularly play my best golf the first two Ryder Cups that I played, but I've grown more comfortable with that role over the years, and, um, yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things I, I, I feel now I'm, I'm one of the leaders of, of of the European team, and I, I want to stand up and, and lead by example. So that's where that competitiveness comes from. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, I think it's, you know, for example, the, the European press conference afterwards when, um, you know, Danny made a couple of very, very funny comments, and we're all, you know, we're in good spirits because we are a team. You know, we, we, we went there as a team and we lead as a team, and, it's, you know, we're never going to, throw anyone under the bus we're never going to blame anyone you know we all tried our best we all played our hearts out and at the end of the week it wasn't good enough and you know i think we're we're big enough uh to acknowledge that and and you know say to the u.s team look they they were better that week and um we but we still you know the thing is like the Ryder cup you you know you you try your best and you you know you it doesn't quite come off and you lose but you still have a great week i mean you know the memories that i'll have from all my Ryder Cups, but especially that one. You know, it's the first one that I've been a part of a losing team. But you know, the memories and the you know the fun that you have along the way. You know, th- those are the memories that you're going to have for the rest of your career. Yeah, that the, the press conference afterwards did stick out to me. Just like for the stark contrast. I know it's different scenarios. The contrast to the 2014 U.S. press conference uh, to what you guys put forth. It was just I, I kind of like I looked at it and it just kind of made sense to me why you guys win a lot. I mean, there was no. Uh, it was just kind of like you know you know what they had the better team and we still had fun and we're still joking with each other and it it just did I I made the joke I was like I don't think I don't think they know they lost like it didn't really seem like you guys even like uh, it didn't seem like it emotionally affected you to have lost I mean I'm sure it did no, but the way you I, carried yourselves yeah it did it was weird because it was like I think for us it was you know. Yeah, we of course we lost, but we looked at the U.S. team and we were sort of thinking, like, especially the fans. Like, I, I was thinking, you know, you know, they're going to be so excited. Their team's won this thing for the first time in you know eight years or whatever it is. And and but it just it seemed like once they won, the, the whole place went sort of quiet. Right. <laughs> and it was it was weird. It was like I was you know, and that's why that's why I was the one that was like you know celebrating like i was like usa like go and <laughs> chant the way you've been chanting for the last three days your team's just won and then all of a sudden they go quiet i just i didn't under i for me you know we we didn't understand that we were like you know you know you can't come and 
chant and shout the way you have for the last three days and not celebrate when you win. That's I said the same exact thing. I had to, I'm wondering if they just spent too much energy screaming their heads off for the first three days and were it, it was it, that's what made me upset. It felt like they were more uh, there to taunt you guys, to yell things at you guys than they were to root on the team to victory at the end of the day. It was, I think, the 18th hole stadium. It doesn't really set up that great for the fans around the green, maybe. That's the only real excuse I can make for it. Like, if they, yeah. if they had yeah. closed it at 16, I think things would have been a little bit different. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, the 18th wasn't the, the best amphitheater to, to celebrate, but I just... I don't know. It was. It was just. It was a. It was just. It was quite muted at the end, and I, I was expecting something different. And I don't know. I mean, it was. You know. I, yeah. It was. It was strange because, you know, as I said at the end of the day, you, you know, I'm fine with people coming and shouting stuff at me for three days and whatever. I, I tried to take it all in my stride, and it was good fun. And I know that they're just trying to help their team, but you know, if you're going to do that for three days, at least at least cheer them on when they win. So, but anyways, it, it is what it is. And, um, you know, it was, it was a great three days. And as I said, America or the U S team were definitely the, the deserved winners. And, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully we can, we can get them back in France. Do you, how do you feel like the main reaction of the fans has been towards you since then? Like, do you feel like you have more or less fans than you did at the start of that week? Maybe you haven't gotten the full experience yet just because you haven't played an event in the U.S. since then. But how do you feel like the fans from, like, from the U.S. side walked away from that? Or how have you felt that so far? Um, I think they reacted well to it. Uh, every, everyone that I've spoken to, um, they keep saying the same thing. You know, we never we've never seen you like that before. We've never, you know, it was, it was great to see. It was real passion and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, I think, I think it's been taken quite well. I don't know if that means I've got more or less fans than, than I did. I mean, I think if, if anything, people might, uh, admire or respect my competitiveness a little bit more Mm -hmm. after that week. I don't know. Um, but, you know, ever it's been it's been hugely hugely positive. Even though, you know, we we didn't get the win, and I wasn't a part of a, a winning team uh, individually. I've I've had a lot of compliments, which is which is nice. Yeah, I, I I'm asking that just because I I know in like my corner of the internet and like my friends, uh, you have if even if it wasn't possible, even more fans or people love you even more just because exactly what you said that competitive spirit, that emotion, and just the playfulness of it too, and like. I don't know, and, and, and I'm dying to ask, like, how in the midst of all of that competition, um, Saturday afternoon round, you take the time and you have the wherewithal and self-awareness to come up to me in the middle of the round and troll me over the Dustin Johnson Brooks <laughs> Kepka pairing that I wanted that you were three up on. How does that happen in the middle of the Ryder Cup? I think when you get to know me a bit better, that's my, <laughs> that's me. That's what I do. Um, I, I'm, I am very, I am very aware of my surroundings. So like, obviously I noticed you following our group. I, I knew that, you know, there were so many people that wanted this Brooks and, and Dustin pairing. And, um, I remember, you know, saying to, uh, I remember saying to Thomas Peters, um, my partner, I said, just keep hitting it hard and keep hitting it straight because, like, I swear, 
the first five holes of that match, it was like a long driving contest. Like, we weren't caring where it was going. We were just trying to hit it as hard as we could. And uh, I said, if we can keep hitting it hard and keep hitting it straight, those boys will keep trying to hit it harder and harder and they'll start to go left on them. And that's sort of, that's always been my... That's always been my thing. I, I feel like if, if I'm driving it really well and I'm playing with a long hitter and where, you know, there's always that little bit of ego where you start to hit it harder and harder. The, the, the harder, you know, the best players in the world hit it, the tendency is that it, it starts to go left on them. And, and that's sort of what started to happen. And um, we just tried to go with that game plan and and, and it worked. But, um, yeah, look, I, you know, I, I, I wanted that match. You know, and as a fan of golf, it was... You know, it was cool to see Brooks and Dustin in a Ryder Cup pairing. I think it's awesome. Yeah. You know, so if I if I was in your position and I wasn't playing in the in the thing, I would have wanted to go out and watch that match as well. So, you know, I, I know that I'm a part of a match that people are excited about and people want to watch. And, you know, that's a pretty cool thing for me as well. <clears throat> would you say overall, um, well, I'd like you to kind of rank the, some of the things that happened during the week f- from the crowd and where they fall on the spectrum of, like, all right, I'm fine with this. This is cool, and this is like taking it too far. Like, for instance, uh, a lot of people talk about cheering after poor European shots. Um, where does that fall in the spectrum? Of like, what what is your reaction to it? What is your teammates' reaction to that? And then, kind of some of the examples of some things that you thought just went too far, where the fans were really crossing the line. Because I know it did happen, and I'm obviously on the American side. I definitely think that lines were crossed out there, but. What are the main things that you guys think are the the issue or the problem that should be dealt with before in the next Ryder Cup? Yeah, I think um, I have no honestly I have no problem with the fans cheering after the European team, someone in the European team hit a bad shot because it, that happens in Europe, right? You know, that's not that's not something that just happens in the U.S. That's something you know, if, if you know, like if a uh, you know American misses a putt. Um, in Europe, the crowd, of course, the crowd are going to cheer if Europe are going to win the whole. You know that's going to happen. So I don't think that anyone should have a problem with that. I think where where the problem lies is, and even the even the taunting and stuff like, you know, even if you're walking up the fairway and, and someone says McIlroy, you suck, or whatever it may be, that's totally fine. But then whenever it starts to get personal, whenever there's like these little personal attacks that start to come from the crowd. Uh, that's where it gets a little bit too far, I think. Yeah. What is like? What, what was your is your lasting memory of the whole week to you? Like, what is the main thing you take away from that? Not necessarily from um, a crowd. Not necessarily from a crowd perspective. Just your overall from the whole Ryder Cup. I loved it. I mean, I, I even though we were part of the losing team, I think the team camaraderie on our European team this year was the best it's ever been. You know, so I think we. I, I had such an enjoyable week. I got to know. A lot of the rookies much much better, um, and those rookies will be on our Ryder Cup team again. Um, and that's my overriding, you know, memories of the week. I, I I thoroughly enjoyed myself. There was a great team spirit, a great team atmosphere, and I got to know a lot of the guys much better, which I was really happy about. And um, hopefully that will stand the team in good stead going forward. Let's go back to back with this, you know, pre-microphone era. The next one's from Jordan Spieth just a few weeks after we chatted with Rory back in the fall of 2016. Uh, a little different tune than you what you might hear from him these days, but just reflecting back on his partnership with Patrick Reed at the 2016 Ryder Cup as well as telling an awesome Tiger story. I, I find the dynamic really fascinating because when, when from an accomplishment standpoint, uh, you're a two-time major champion. 
Um, you, Patrick Reed, while still a top 10 player in the game, just has not accomplished the same things that you have in your, in your careers. Yet when it comes Ryder Cup time, um, he is the alpha male in the, two, the, the pairing between the two. You've even referred to how you, refer, you defer to him to concede whether or not you concede putts and whatnot. How, what, what is that dynamic like for you to be kind of in the passenger seat, whereas you, know, you are you know, the fifth-ranked player in the world at this point, two-time major champion, yet you're kind of deferring to a guy that doesn't, even have, doesn't have the same track record as you? It, it, it's, um, oh, man, it's, just, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it, I, know, I know you guys, I know everybody, um, whether you're an American or European, had fun watching Patrick Reed, even the, the last two Ryder Cups. I mean, imagine being right by his side listening to the things he was saying <laughs> as we walked down the fairways. I mean, it's exactly what you'd probably expect he was saying, and it makes it even better. Um, yeah, it, it was an interesting position to be in as kind of a type A personality. Um, I think, you know, just just be like, all right, let's, uh, all right, calm down, all right, get pumped up. You know, I mean, you, you, you know, the guy, the guy just wants, he, he wants to be in a, in a position where he feels like his back's against the wall. It's where he plays his best. It's where he brings out his best. It's where he shows the best emotion. I mean, I, I thought, I thought I broke my thumb when I stood on the 17. I remember this year, Patrick, hold it, hold that wedge on number six, a par five yep. when we were playing, uh, I think it was best ball. Might have been ultimate. I'm, I'm not sure, but um, he hold he hold that wedge, and I start. I threw my putter up in the air. I started running back to him, and he thought we were going for the chest bump, and uh, I instead went for their normal high five. <laughs> I mean, he took my hand off me. I I get on the tee on seven, and I and I grip the club, and I bring Michael over like I normally do, just to use the towel to, to wipe my hands and grip. And I and I was like, Mike. This isn't for the towel, dude. I literally can't feel my right hand right now. He's like, all right, we'll just, just put a smooth swing on it. I hooked this thing so far into the water left. So Patrick, that's your fault. You got this hole too. And I was like, it was, um, man, he just, the, the fire he brings, uh, just the, it's just, it's just, he's Captain America, man, in that, in that tournament. I, I love being his teammate. I love being a part of it. It's, um, he, uh, in the President's Cup last year, I partnered with with Dustin Johnson for a couple rounds, and Patrick was so pissed at me <laughs> that we were partnering. And so finally, we're uh, we're playing in the last uh, last evening, Saturday evening, I guess, in best ball. They, we we got put back together, and um, and we ham and egged it and shot something ridiculous. Because he was trying to beat me so bad, he wanted to want to. He didn't give a crap who we were playing. He just wanted to. Be, he was so pissed at me that week for going to DJ. He reminded me every time I saw him, even during that match. And then he just went out and made like six or seven birdies in the round, and uh, and we closed him out in the dark. It was. I mean, it was. I mean, those team events are are one of a kind. It's where you build kind of relationships with these guys. Where when you're at a tournament like this with 18 players everybody's going to be hanging out with everyone the whole week because you've already had those experiences together. I mean, it's, it's amazing for, you know, a few years ago, was it four years ago? I was, I was, you know, getting ready for my last finals. And now these guys are the people I looked up to so much are now peers. I mean, it's, it's, it really is amazing. And those team events are what really brings it out on and off the course. I mean, instead of, instead of sitting there and saying, all right, Brant Snedeker's got this 20 footer to beat you in this tournament, <laughs> you've never, I mean, you obviously want to, him to be able to make and you to make it on top. 
but in these events to watch these guys that you kind of are, are playing against and actually root for them and ride that momentum with them it's it's special what uh, you got you got to you can't say like uh, you can't reference all the things that Reed says walking down the fairway and not give us like one example of just something crazy <laughs> that he said at the Ryder Cup this year <laughs> uh, that's suitable that's 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 repeatable I, I don't know I don't know what kind of words are acceptable <laughs> here but um everything's acceptable uh, on here everything's acceptable on here um let's see let me try and give you an example here it's just like the 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 common um like patrick patrick look these guys are in trouble like like i'll walk i'll walk over because the guy he, he wants to hit it to a foot every time and then just kind of pump his chest you know and so I remember the first time I really recognized him in the Ryder Cup was when we played our first match ever in the Ryder Cup, and we played against Ian Poulter and Stephen Gallagher in uh, in Scotland at Glen Eagles. And um, we were on, I think it was the fifth hole of par four, and we're playing alternate – no, we're playing best ball against them. And we're already one up, I think, early, and they are both in big trouble. Gallagher's in trouble off the tee. Poulter's now hitting the water on the second and I hit it kind of on the left side of the green, about 30, 40 feet. Patrick's last to hit. And I go, Patrick, what do you, um, he's like, what do you like here? And I'm like, dude, 25 feet left, we won the hole. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm going right at the stick. <laughs> he, goes, he, goes, he goes, I don't want to beat him by one. I want to thump him on this hole. It's like, dude, you get the same thing. You get one up on the hole, and you move to the next. All of a sudden, you're two up. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, he goes at the pin. I think he comes up short a little in the hazard. I've got like a five-foot slider to tie the hole. I'm like, why are you doing this to me, man? And then the next hole, he hits it to a foot. So, you know, or he makes like a, he made like a 22-footer or something on, on uh, six. So, I mean, it's just, it's stuff like that where he's just, it, it's about, it's about sticking, sticking the knife in instead of just, you know, playing the match for the match. And, and I think it's just so great. It, it just, it brings out the best in him. He loves it. And when he's on, I mean, you saw it this year. Um, I mean, he single-handedly took down Stinson Rose on that back nine. It was really kind of uh, one of the more amazing performances I've ever seen and fortunate to watch it right in front of me. I was trying to help him out. Made a few pars, but geez, I mean, what was I going to do? You, I mean, the guy just wanted to stay out of his way. You did start the Patrick Reed chant on 16 as he was coming up for Putty for Eagle, <laughs> so don't, you, don't say you didn't contribute to that one. I was certainly contributing to it. <laughs> I was still probably 30 yards away from him, but uh, I, mean, I mean, that guy, he loves himself a club twirl. I mean, oh. He loves it. If he could, I mean, right after he strikes out, I mean, I think it was like a three iron or a hybrid or something into that hole. He's trucking, he's twirling and doing the walk, and I'm standing. I'm standing with Tiger. I'm just kind of looking at Tiger. <laughs> Are you watching this right now? <laughs> he's just smirking. I mean, he didn't really know what to say. It was funny. We, we, had, a, we had a good moment with Tiger. We um, we had a good moment. Um, it's a funny story. We were playing number six actually, and I. It might have been the actual um, same match where he hold the shot, the wedge shot. We hit a tee ball out there and. Uh, um, Tiger, we're walking with Tiger up to, to the ball, and um, Tiger says something like, or I said something like, um, man, Tiger, you've never been able to play this good. You know, I was just joking with him, saying like, um, and we were playing alternate shot, actually. This was a different match, and we've, we've not missed a shot yet. I think Patrick just chipped in the hole before, and, and we're, we're like three up on Sergio and Rafa. And um, 
I'm like, Tiger, you've never played this good an alternate shot in your life. Or something. <laughs> he, he says something like, uh, something, something, something smart back, and and uh, I want to say, um, I can't. I, I wish, I wish I could recall exactly how it went right now, but something where Tiger goes, uh, Patrick said something back to Tiger. Tiger goes, "Don't worry, Patrick. You only need 79 more. Or you need like 74 more wins." And and. Uh, 14 more majors and then i go patrick you can't talk to him because you can't even talk to me you need two more majors and like four more wins to, get to me i don't it was something and then of course you know he steps up and <laughs> it, it's that kind of talk that gets him going and he i mean he just went off there right afterwards but it was just kind of a it was a funny moment with tiger talking because you don't really hear tiger talk about everything he's drop you know to go back on Patrick and, and he used it there because he was like you know screw this guy I'm <laughs> I'm using this right now what the, who is this guy <laughs> that is that's fantastic so you know for the record we've coined what he did on 16 with that with that twirl we call it the reed coil there you go I like that there you go the reed coil um so how much say did did reed really have in you guys going back out for that final match because the What's been reported is that he re- the refused to be sat. Were you guys really going to be sat? And was he like, were you, A, did you want to sit? So, no. no, okay. No, no, no. From the get-go, we were, um, Tiger, Tiger was uh, what he called our, um, you know, our team leader. And, uh, and he, had, he had told us ahead of time, he goes, you guys, you guys get off and running an alternate shot. You're playing again. Um, and then we just kind of took care of that. I mean, we ended up, oh, man. We ended up blowing the, that lead to them. Oh, it just stings me still now that we blew that lead to those to the Spaniards. But at the time, I mean, we were four or five up during the middle of that match. I mean, so they were. I mean, Tiger Tiger came on. I want to say uh, twelve tee box, and he told us you guys are going back out in the afternoon. And I don't, I don't know what happened after that. <laughs> we kind of um, <laughs> the bed a little right after that. But uh, um, but we were we we knew we were going back out. We love the best ball format. Um, we, we just knew that between us two, whenever we talked to each other, we knew that we could play our way into playing five matches. And that's, you know, it wasn't about trying to, trying to uh, you know, with our words tell anybody. It was we can play our way into five matches. I think Patrick, in his own talks with um, Davis or, or Tiger, may have said, you know, I'm definitely playing. I'm, <laughs> you want me playing? But I, I couldn't tell you for sure what was said. <laughs> We're going to go back-to-back here first with Francesco Molinari, then right into Tommy Fleetwood as they both talk about the celebration after the 2018 Ryder Cup as well as their partnership. <laughs> it was, a, you know, as it should be, a huge party and, and uh, a lot of drinks. And, and uh, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a week, obviously, with a lot of pressure, like we say. And then at the end of a week like that, you need to unleash the, the pressure yeah. somehow. So it was a big party. I mean... The, uh, both teams come together in one room and kind of celebrate together and party together. Or is it is it separated <laughs> out? I mean, I remember seeing in 2016. Uh, uh, yeah. I remember seeing story or seeing pictures of Rory in the U.S. team room kind of celebrating. But did that not happen in France? I've had uh, yeah different experiences this time in France. I mean, I was there until three and I didn't see anyone. But I heard that some of the U.S. players came in after that. But they were too busy either, fighting. Either I don't remember seeing them. Or... <laughs> I was gone already, yeah. So I want to hear about the video you and Tommy Fleetwood shot. Uh, after, wh- when did you guys shoot that? I know it was posted the next day. Uh, how did that come together? 
Yeah, it was pretty much middle of the party, like 2.30 in the morning. One of the <laughs> European tour media guys pitched us the, the idea and we were like, yeah, sure. But, you know, I think we it was a bit unfair because we were in conditions where we weren't really able to say no to, to anything. So, yeah, we... we so yeah, we, we, I think it was just the three of us that, that knew about it. Maybe some of the agents yeah. had, had heard the, the idea. So then we we decided to go up to the rooms and uh, I didn't want to go to my room. Tommy <laughs> didn't want to go to his room. So we ended up in the European tour media guy room. <laughs> well, and... tell us what Tommy did also. <laughs> we know the story. I'm going to make you tell it. <laughs> <laughs> so we get there and obviously... The script was, you know, you get in bed and you say this and you say that. Right. <laughs> so Tommy gets there and gets like fully naked and gets in bed. <laughs> and I told him, no, I'm not, I'm not going to get in bed like that. Sorry, but there needs to be at least some clothing. <laughs> so, yeah, he put the the minimum clothing possible on and, and, <laughs> and we then, got in bed. So the media guy had to sleep in that bed after Tommy got naked in it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. He did. He did. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what his I don't know what his side of the story was, but I uh, I, I I can I can. Let's tell just it say he he bared it all, if you will. He he told us the story. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was. I mean, the actual like the amount of takes that we actually tried to do that video <laughs> was like the funniest part because it was. I mean, Gibbo who decided that this video like we were going to do this like great idea. You know, whatever time I I couldn't even put a time on it anymore. I I don't know. It was one a.m., two a.m., midnight, whatever it was. And yeah, when we were up in the room and <laughs> everyone gave us room, and he's like, "Okay, like you guys get in the bed. This is what we're gonna do." Fran's like, "Okay, like you know," turns around to get in the bed, and I just like took everything off, and I'm like, <laughs> "But like as soon as Fran like saw, it was just just a really really funny time. So we got the giggles at that, and then once we were in. Fran, after he's had like a drink, is so funny, and all it took was like to just look at each other, and we we just couldn't stop laughing, and it it was like it took so long to do, and and then came and then came out really good. But Fran, uh, Fran's very Fran's very very funny when he's had a drink. He lit up telling that story. Everyone kind of, <laughs> at least like to the outside world, he's kind of you know. Even the Golf Channel teases him for being kind of robotic, but yeah, when yeah. he got the chance to tell that story, I saw a side of him that I'd never really seen. Before, oh, good, but... good. He's got like he's got a really English sense of humor as well um, that people probably don't don't see, but he's got like a a very high level of sarcasm to him. Well, you know that week was obviously incredible for you two. You guys went four and zero together. You went up, mm-hmm. I, but you played Tiger three times. Does that sound right in in the match play in the team portion of it? You know, you've yeah. played plenty of times with Tiger in you know you know regular stroke play events. Yeah. But what's it like to go up against him in a Ryder Cup? I think we were lucky that he wasn't at his best for starters, but he still always pulls out like the odd shot that you're like, "Come on, Tiger!" Like that's that's not even fair. The Ryder Cup was amazing. I think I still remember getting the draw on in the opening ceremony when the draw came out, and um, we were playing Tiger and Patrick Reed. Um, but yeah, you know, like that whole week, I actually found. Like I, I write, I write stuff sometimes, and I found the other day rooting through a drawer. There was like a piece of paper, and it was, it was from that Ryder Cup, and it was um, on the. So it was literally just from Friday, and that particular Friday was Frankie's first birthday, um, so it was a special day anyway. Then I, 
you know, I'm playing with Fran, who's a really close friend. It's my first Ryder Cup. It's in France, and I'd, I'd wrote down, like, a couple of things for the day. I said it was my son's first birthday. I played in the Ryder Cup, my first Ryder Cup. I went 2-0, and and I actually, that day, we beat, so there was Tiger, Jordan, and JT, who had all been world number one at the time, and then there's Patrick Reed, who's Captain America, and I was like, yeah, we we like we went 2-0 and against these people. Like, that's really cool. There's certain things that I think, yeah, you go through in, in your career or whatever, and you play, and then you just you do actually just move on from them really you, like you don't like live it out and I'm definitely not going to live on the back of yeah I had a great time at the Ryder Cup but there, there are special moments in your career that you do need to appreciate you need to make sure that you remember and yeah those couple of days like playing that Ryder Cup was so good and I got a lucky experience that for my First Ryder Cup, it was at home. It was on a course that I'd played a bunch of times. You know, I was playing with, Fra- you know, Fran was next to me. He was a really close friend. I The first tee shot, which is people's, people describe as like, don't know how to make contact with the ball. You know, you get on that. I actually don't like that first tee shot, but look at the eyes. It's like, at the time, I had that blue Nike 5 wood that I just couldn't miss with. Um, like, there was a lot of things that went in my favour that week um, that I was really, really lucky of, and it all you know, equaled having such a great experience. Plus, the team play amazing. You're on a winning Ryder Cup team. Like, it's it's very, very special. That first tee shot was cruel. for they, they, All the people that they put around there and gave you a hole that was not driver. I, I, I don't know how you guys were finding the club face, though. I mean, that it's one thing to just step up and pound a driver, but that was not an option on that one. But, uh, oh, it was. Like, it was like, um, and, and Fran in his, so at the, you know, Fran set of clubs at the time. I remember on, there was one of the days, it was like the Tuesday of the Ryder Cup, and he's t- testing this three wood that is topped on the ninth in the practice round. So we play that morning in four balls. He's got a two iron. He was like, yeah, I don't know why this club's in my bag. Like I very rarely hit a good shot with this club. And I think he might have hit it into like the 17th when he won the open or something. It a great shot. So I was like, I'm sure you've hit good shots at the time. He's going, no, I, this club, I don't like it at all. So in the foursomes on Friday afternoon, we get onto the first tee. We have, I mean, we literally had like a 20 minute turnaround. We get onto the first tee and Fran's hitting the first tee shot. So I, I'm just stood on the first tee anyway. I've got nothing to do. I'll just stand there and I'm fine. Anyways, discussed with his caddy, Peo, takes club out of his bag, turns to me, shows me the number two and just gives me this like look with his eyebrows as if as if I'm hitting this off the first. <laughs> like moments that people don't see. You can't believe that, yeah, like Franz, you know, he's got this two iron that he hates and he's hitting off the first tee at the Ryder Cup. It's, it's hard enough as it is, but that was funny. Next up is Sergio Garcia. I don't know. Obviously, I'm I'm not American. I'm not in the sure. in the team room. But uh, us as the European, we don't need extra motivation motivation for right. for Ryder Cup. We we love it. And uh, but uh, but it did feel like some people were like already given the trophy to the to the US team because yeah, they, they don't get me wrong, they had a great team. Sure. But you know, but the Ryder Cup is different. And once you get there. You know things happen, and uh, you know, obviously the course was wasn't ideal for them, which which was great for us because we were more comfortable in that kind of course. It's a course that we've we've all played, and we uh, we felt very familiar with it. So um, you know there there were several things that uh, that were in our favor coming into it, and and obviously they showed us as the week went on. Next up, it's Bones again. This is another interview from the 2016 time period. Yeah, there's there's a lot to that, and and I'll, I'll try and keep it short. But but the bottom line is, 
you go to these Ryder Cups and and you know I've been fortunate enough to go to the last ten or eleven of them, and, <laughs> and they're amazing, amazing events. And you know we all want to win. The American golf public wants us to win, and we haven't been winning very much, you know. And you know certainly in the wake of the 2014 Ryder Cup, you know, ending the way it did in Scotland and ending the way it did at the press conference afterwards, you know, Phil put a lot on his own shoulders and he took, he took, he kind of, you know, ran with the ball and, and, and I'm so glad that he did because a lot of things that desperately needed to be changed got changed and, and quickly. And, and so, you know, going into this year's Ryder Cup, in addition to the fact that we haven't been wanting them, you know, I felt, I certainly felt the pressure that Phil had on him, if that makes sense. And so for, you know, him to play the way he did, he played pretty darn well the first two days. And then just to go out there on Sunday and to, to play that well under pressure and, and just to be in a match when you're playing a guy who's literally hitting it 305 yards down the middle of every single fairway and then make that putt on 18, I, I, I was really happy for him. I was really happy for the team. I was really happy for the all the people that have been, you know, come up to us and say, geez, can we just win a Ryder Cup, you know, and, and, and things along those lines. So there was a lot that went into that week and that moment. Yeah, I found that very refre- that refreshing as a fan just because I know that uh, obviously caddying for Phil, somebody who's made the second most money of all time on the PGA Tour, I would imagine – your, your monetary benefits of being a caddy are, are kind of, uh, they're, they're settled at least, and I think you, there's a lot more art to your craft, if I may say, and that you, uh, you're invested in his success more, than, more so than, you know, just from a financial perspective, obviously. So I just, I find that the, the caddy's excitement level about the Ryder Cup and interest in the Ryder Cup so fascinating. And I remember reading somewhere where you said, before you even had caddied for Phil, it kind of weighed into your decision to, to move from, I think, Curtis Strange's bag to his bag, was you had a goal of caddying in the Ryder Cup, and you saw Phil as your ticket into, uh, into caddying for the Ryder Cup. Am I remembering that right, first of all? Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. I was actually working for Scott Simpson that's at the right. time, but certainly working for Curtis a little bit, too. On He had a rotation of guys at the time, but you're 100% right. My, you know, and, and listen, you know, as you know, the, the caddy turnover rate is incredible. So I'm thinking, well, if I go to work for Phil Mickelson here, I have this opportunity. But, boy, I hope I can hang in there for a year or two because, you know, statistically you're just not going to last that long. And They've always said that you never want to be a great player's first caddy because typically they're always going to make a change at some point, mm. you know, and find somebody else out there they'd rather work with. But, but yeah, my thinking at the time was, my gosh, I don't know how long I'm going to caddy and keep my head above water out here. So my only goal as a caddy is to caddy in one Ryder Cup, and, and, and the entire decision, you know, to a large degree went into that. Did it meet the hype once you finally got to do it? And now that you've done it ten times, is it, uh, does, it still, does it still give you the same kind of feeling? Even more so. I mean, I I don't know what it is. I mean, you know, it's just the most amazing experience. And I think, you know, Phil and probably other guys have said it in interviews that, you know, as you get to a certain point in your career, it's like these team events mean as much to you as anything just because there's so much fun. There's so much kind of bonding. You have relationships with these guys you really wouldn't otherwise do for the most part. I mean, you see a side of folks that you aren't going to see you know, in a good way. And, and it's just, it's incredible. And, and, uh, I mean, this year, you know, with the whole tiger thing and tiger just taking the leadership role that he did and, you know, and, you know, and obviously what went on with Bubba, you know, 
and I know you, you know, the whole Bubba Ted thing that, you know, you, you know, when it, when it, when it turned out that Bubba was going to be a, an assistant captain on the team and he was up there and that was great. I admired him very much for doing it, but as caddies, we were like, well, where's Ted? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, they got Ted on the next plane up there and, and, and they were a big part of it. So th- there was just a lot to this Ryder Cup. How many more, if you're to place a bet on it now, and uh, how many more Ryder Cups do you think Phil has in him? Well, I tell you what, if you ask him about being a captain, he does not want to have that conversation right now. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Because he does, he, he refuses to, you know, acknowledge that he's not going to be on, you know, the next team or the team after that. And, and I, I love it about him and, and, and I hope it works out exactly the way he wants it to. So, you know, my gosh, you know, more than, you know, multiple is the answer to that, you know. Um, be it, you know, Paris, Wisconsin, you know, Rome, whatever. And obviously there's that, you know, Ryder Cup, you know, lurking at Bethpage there in about 24. And he's got those ties to that community and to that golf course. And, and, and that would be super cool, you know. But, but right now he is all about playing and doesn't even want to hear about it. So my dream of him being a playing captain in 24 is still alive, is what you're telling me. It's, it's definitely alive. Yes, yes. That's like my number one golf goal, I think, to see is, <laughs> is Phil be a playing captain, send himself out first. I can't wait for it. But. <laughs> send himself out first. <laughs> first. That's hilarious. Next up is Zinger talking about his captaincy. If the PJ of America really wants to win, and maybe they'll win with Strick, um, they need to get rid of that attitude that there's more captains than there are Ryder Cups. That I would have loved to have done several Ryder Cups instead of 18 or 19 living captains. I think it would have been great, you know, if there was 11 living captains. Maybe I would have never been a captain because the captains before me would have captained for a few years. But the attitude at the PJ of America has always been more. Um, we just want to give you the honor of being the captain. And the also the punishment of what that did for how you're going to be remembered because you got your butt handed to you. Well, <laughs> how important is it? And I realize I'm asking a former player in this regard, but how important is it? How necessary is it for a player to be the captain of the Ryder Cup team? Oh, you're thinking like bring in? Uh, I, all, that's an open ended question. I'm just saying how? Why does bring it in have, a baseball have to football. be a player? Yeah, you're right. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. But it should. You know, anybody could do it, I suppose. Ken Venturi captained the President's Cup team, and he didn't know what clubs players were using and all that. So he knew how golf worked, and he knows how personalities work, I think. He knew that. Yeah, I, I think – I mean, you'll never go outside of the players being the captains. I think the one rule that needed to go away altogether was the idea that you had to have won a major to be a Ryder Cup captain is stupid. And because um, I, I yeah. it's amazing when you hear people talk about the reasons why people get selected, and that oh he's he's got all this he's got so much experience like oh yeah he's well, he's a PGA champion he was a gutty well, player he was yeah. a gutty Ryder Cup he's yeah, a good just, match play player I'm just like I don't think that's the re- like some of the teams that have won I don't think it's because the player won a, a major twenty years prior to that I mean so that's where and I I know you've got we've talked we we've talked 08 with you I know and 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 I know we've talked about the philosophy behind that team you built but how did you win the captaincy how did you become the captain and how did you present that strategy i at the right age at the right time i was uh really a pretty lucky Ryder cup player i, I got great pairings you could have i could have had obscure Ryder cups 
But because, you know, you hand in the envelope, the Europe hands in an envelope, we hand in an envelope, open them up, and you see what sequence of order they'll go. You're not looking for matches. But I always played all their best players. I suppose I could say I was really unlucky. I drew all their best players. But it made more marquee opportunity for me. And I played really well against Seve and Jose. And, I, you know, uh, Chip Beck and I beat Faldo and Woosnam. But to draw Faldo and Woosnam, they'd never been beaten. It's hard luck. But it was great. A great opportunity. So I had that reputation as a Ryder Cup player. Then I won the PGA Championship. Um, I got sick after that, but I had endeared myself to them a little bit. So I got offered the opportunity to captain in 06 after Payne had passed. And I really didn't want to do that. I just didn't. And I also wanted to be the captain in America, I was going to say, you just wanted a home one. (laughs) I did want to be. Yeah, that was, you know, Dave Stockton called me and said, don't do it. So it was promised to me, 08. At 48 years old, they got slaughtered in 06 and 04, lost by nine points. Never been, never happened before. Two times in a row, just wiped out. And who was the captain? 06. Layman was the captain. He had other guys. Corey was in there. But Corey apparently was going to be, all of a sudden, he must have been in there lobbying or something because I got a call from a past president of the PGA of America said, Zinger, you still want to be the captain for 08? I said, yeah, I thought I was. I thought that was the case. He goes, no, it's getting ready. You're getting ready to lose it. So I had to call the PJ of America and uh, talk to the president of the PJ of America at the time, Roger Warren. And I lobbied and I lobbied my idea, which was to take a large group of 12 and break them into three small groups of four. And then the idea was to put them together. I didn't actually have this at the time, but to put them together by like personalities. But I just told them that I wanted to take that Navy SEALs concept of team building. Turns out Roger Warren was an ex-basketball coach, and he loved it, and he embraced it. And uh, I ended up getting it. But I had to lobby for it. It was promised to me, and I had to lobby for it. That's that's kind of the disconnect between the tour and the PGA of America, too. It's a, a real example of how much turnover and change there can be. But I, I really believe if the PJ of America wants to win these Ryder Cups now, where winning is what matters, you know, European Tour owns their Ryder Cup. The PJ of America owns our, not the PGA Tour. And uh, I, I would just make Tiger all-time captain. <laughs> I like that idea. Here's another one from Hunter Mahan talking about the 2010 Ryder Cup. So let's go to the 2010 Ryder Cup, and, I, and we're not going to zoom straight to the end. Uh, I think everything from that week can kind of get dumbed down in, into how it ended. But w- what was that week like? You know, a lot of I, I really weirdly enjoy going back and watching the highlights from that, not to see the lavender sweaters or whatever those were. But <laughs> I mean, it was a wild week weather-wise, starts and stops, just pure delays. They changed the whole format of the event mid-event, and you finish on a Monday. It, what do you what do you remember about all that? Yeah, chaos. It felt a little bit like chaos. Yeah, there was no, there was no flow to the week at all. Right, the weather was so rough. I remember, gosh, I remember the start. Like it was just pouring down rain, and it was like, what are we doing? Like this is just a disaster. This is no energy of what you think of a Ryder Cup is going to be like. Um, it was a pretty cool course, but it was, you know, it was just a mess. It just felt chaotic all week, and it was hard to get. Um, a hold of of what we were doing and the course was just completely soaked i felt like we played it up all week um it was just kind of wild it just it definitely didn't have a great uh, flow to it so it was just kind of challenging that way mm-hmm. and so when, when singles pairings come out do you how do you end up in the spot that you're that you're in do you know immediately like hey this could come down to me 
when did you start to realize that things were kind of bubbling up to potentially come down to, you know, your match being the deciding match? And then uh, I, I want to set the scene for how we get to the very end as well. But what, before we get there, you know, how did you how did you end up in that spot? I can't say I remember how. I just remember that we were down and we needed to front load the team and we really needed a lot of points early um, because it could get away from us um, the first probably six or eight matches. I don't know. I think I was maybe second to last. Not, I definitely wasn't last, but somewhere around there. Um, and so it was really strange playing because everybody was already, like all the fans were out there. There's like not many people really following us because everyone's watching, you know, the big names or whatever. But even even then, like the match, you don't really know when the match is going to end and how things are going to turn out. And so it was, you're just kind of playing and not when we were by ourselves, but it was it was not a whole lot of like fanfare. You were just sort of in the background for a really long time. And then all of a sudden it was like, bang, here it is. You look at the scoreboard and it's, it's coming down to this match. You were out last. You were the 12th, the 12th. Match, I was so I pulled 12th. Out. Okay. Yeah, you and you and G Mac were, were 12th. And so well, I think this is extremely important and almost, I'm wondering if you think this is lost to history that, you know, when you guys get to the 17th hole, you needed to win the last two holes. You know, it wasn't. Right, yeah. It, it w- I would say we're looking at maybe a fifteen percent probability here at, at the highest. I don't. I didn't do the math on that, but that's my estimation. I just want that noted because I feel like. I guess. Do you feel like that part gets lost to history? And I know it doesn't make what happened after that probably any easier. But uh, does that? Does that? You know? Do you take any solace in that to say like you were battling an uphill climb at that moment to begin with? Yeah, I remember he made a great birdie on 16. Right. 16 was a pretty good, challenging hole. And um, G-Mac, the, you know, the gamer and the putter that he is, rolled in a beautiful putt, I remember. It crept uh, like in a, on the low end. Like, it, yeah. was, it could have gone the other way. Yeah, it was, um, it, was a, it was a good hole. It was a good birdie. I knew I was in trouble at that point. So, um, yeah, we were, not, we were not in good position at, at going into 17 for sure. It's not, I remember getting a ton of texts from people, you know, Azinger texted me right after that and Peter Jakes and people I knew and they were like, hey, this happened to you because you've got big shoulders and you can take it. And what you forget is that being in, being in that situation means you did something right and you did something right for a long time. So uh, I felt proud. I love um, it was so great to be in that. It was so fun, even though as emotionally draining it was and, and as hard as it was. Um, G-Mac is such a, a gentleman. I have so much love for that guy and so much respect for him. Um, to go into battle with him in that situation was was a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, it was it was a sad moment and it was tough. But I was playing the President's Cup, in, in, the Ryder Cup in front of millions of people that's pretty cool. That's not an experience that, you know, losing something doesn't mean you lost. It just meant it wasn't your day. And I don't know. I, I just felt, like I said, you put so much work into that to leave upset or sad about it would be a complete, it would be missing the point. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you, how do you feel like you were treated after that? Did you feel like most people under, were understanding in terms of golf fans? I'm sure your peers were, you know, obviously understanding. I mean, I just look at that image before you hit that chip of all those people on that hill 
you're the only match out there and a, a, a pressure that you cannot simulate in anything that you do ever in your life. And I'm just wondering kind of what you, if you felt more support or blame after that from, from golf fans or whatnot, uh, and how you, how you, how you dealt with all that. It sounds like, it sounds like very well from what you just said, but I'm wondering what you remember feeling in the, in those moments. No, I, I think um, there's always going to be a small percentage of people who can't wait to, you know, I'm just glad Twitter wasn't around and, and social media wasn't around as prevalent back then. But um, no, I think everyone, Empathy. I know the team. I, I, yes, I remember getting into the locker room and I'm just like, it's so heavy. The, 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 that week is, is, I remember Jeff Ogilvie said um, about playing the President's Cup, he said, it's the most fun you're going to have ever going to have until you realize you're going to lose. And then he said it, then it just gets so heavy on you. You're like, Oh crap, we lost. And so those weeks are so fun. Um, you're amongst the best players in the world. And when you lose and then lose in such a dramatic way, it's so heavy. It, it felt like it just like, a you know, an avalanche, but the, you know, the guys on the team were so great and they, you know, every one of them came up to me afterwards and was like, Hey, we lost it. We came here as a team. We lost as a team. This is not uh, something you, you, this is not a burden you carry around. So, um, you know, and I think guys always took so much offense to the, the fact that Europe was a better team than us. And we, we never really joined up together and it, and it was that bothered us. And it was so ridiculous. Um, we were just as much a unit as they were. And we bonded so incredibly well that week. Um, that it, it it I never felt like any shame or anything of it because I think people know that it's a game and it's uh, you know it goes your way and sometimes it doesn't. And not only that, after it happens, you are the wound is so incredibly fresh, and you're asked to go up, you know, and face the media and discuss what just happened. And I remember, I remember watching that, and I don't know how you look back on that moment, but as a sports fan, I remember just being like. Honestly, everything about this moment is what I love about golf and sports. Like that, right? You know that this person had to be be asked this question and put on this world stage, and it didn't go his way, and it means a ton to him to it for it to have not gone his way, and he is showing that in front of the world. And I, I, I did, did you feel that sentiment from a lot of people that you know? It, obviously, it's it's a I, I don't know. What do you feel when you go back or whenever you see highlights or, or or think about that moment of having to kind of display that emotion in front of the world? Yeah, I think the courage you you know you have to do to sh- the courage you have to show and play golf for a living and 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 do anything in front of people and expose yourself and be vulnerable like that is really challenging. Not a lot of people want to be exposed like that. And it was very humbling for me to be a part of that and those are the moments that make you stronger, right? It, it might be a cliche, but it's so true when you when you get undressed like that in a way. Um it does make you stronger and it, it does make you realize how great it was. And um, like I said, you work so hard to be a part of that team and to have a great, to have a struggle and a fight and a grit to, to compete against a great, uh, a bunch of great players. Um, you can't leave there being feeling sad or sorry for yourself because that's just missing the point. And you can't let it define you either, which you definitely, no, uh, you definitely no, did no. not, you know, it's, uh, you, you get, can't, you can't, yeah, no, you can't be a part of, um, um, 
you, you can't be a part of something like that and, and, and think that was a bad thing, right? Like you, that's where you want to be. That's where, that's an opportunity to, to be a part, to, to have great success. You're going to have to risk failure. And, you know, if you never really put it out there, then, then you have nowhere to fall. But, um, it, it was all, I, I just, enjoy, like I said, I just enjoyed the team events so much. As everyone says, once you become part of one, you want to, you want to become a part of all of them just because it's so fun to be in a group like that. And for that many days that you are one, you've got one common goal and it's just so much fun. Well, pro golf is lonely and, and team golf is the opposite of lonely. It's the one time where, you know, you are uh, you're on the same team as a lot of people that's that's obvious but you know you're all on, together on the same mission whereas you know you play a major championship and you're out there with your your buddies in that major championship but when you all go separate ways that night and you're all going out trying to accomplish different goals the next day so to get the the one week a year that you get a totally different goal and and you know energy around it there's a reason why guys rave about it so much i would have to imagine oh, it's so fun it's so cool it, it's um it's a throwback to being in college and and to not being thinking about yourself you know you're really thinking about each other and, and having a common goal it's really cool last but not least a clip from david Faraday, his episode uh episode 70 again way back in the day in 2016 thank you everyone for tuning in and we can't wait to go launch it next week um well i i think chris that was one of the years that really changed it yep. uh, dramatically it was it was the year of the uh, you know the gulf war and there was tremendous you know pro-american sentiment in the crowd and we had the, the european crowd there that were you know with the ole 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 which was just the most mindless anthem <laughs> the world has ever heard you know i love the lyric yeah um but there was the um you know that, that sort of partisan feeling off you know behind the ropes uh, that was for sure, but you know, on, on the golf course, it was—it's always been entirely different. You know, the players—they uh, uh, adore the Ryder Cup. There's something so special about it, and uh, th- this is one that caught the attention of the American public. It came down to the last putt on the last green in the last match with Bernhard Langer and and Hale Irwin, and uh, you, you know, I, I think it really sort of teed up the Ryder Cup for, for the next. Uh, you know, 20 or 25 years, you know, to this point um, where it's arguably the most important golf event uh, of every two years. It's certainly the most watchable and um, the most magnetic. Uh, it uh, It's about, you know, players going out there and playing for the reason that they started playing the golf. They just love the game. And um, it's you can't make the the comparison between that and war but when uh, when kids go to fight you know for the united states it's not the united states that's in their mind it's the guy to the right and the guy to the left of them hmm. you know and, and that's the, the Ryder cup as well you really care about what your teammates think and it's really the only opportunity of the year you know to, to feel that way because it's your ball it's your game and it's a selfish game other than this one particular moment be the right club be the right club today Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect.